Greetings, ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from Outer from our Space. Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1066 to 1079. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1066. A teachable moment, written by you sure I'm not a robot. Commander, we can no longer hold him. We have lost all rear support. Our intel is shut to hell. We don't even know where our own people are, let alone the damned aliens. I give us an hour before we lose access to the orbitals. This offensive is shut. We need to pull back before it's too late. The commander looked gray, grayer than normal in the stamped war. I nodded. Give the order. I want as clean withdrawal as possible. Leave our prisoners behind. He paused and looked at his second. Make sure our men leave them alive and unharmed. Leave a few medics behind if necessary. The second hesitated and then stopped himself from adding anything. Sir, Intel wants them and we've had the room. He looked bitterly at the numbers. We have uh, plenty of room. The commander shook his head. And then the enemy will hunt us down looking for them. Intel always wants prisoners. It gives them something to do instead of pleading with us. If I give these bastard creatures a reason to follow our retreat, we won't make it out of the system. They will waste time recovering their people, and it'll buy us some time. He looked at the chance. Long enough for us to get off of this howl world and fall back. Do it! The troop ships were damaged and under heavy fire as they tried to retreat, until the aliens found their captured troops beaten Hungry, but alive. The weapons fire trailed off to a near silence as they were allowed to leave. Some unspoken courtesy offered for the gift. The discovery that some of the enemy medics had remained to care for the people silenced the last gun. For now. The commander pulled his men from the wrecked landers and heard silence fall as the enemy allowed him a breath. A single moment to flee. He had no illusion that it would last longer than a harpy before the attacks resumed. Gratitude had a very short half-life in war. Get our ships moving! Blow the orbitals once we're loaded. We don't have time to take them with us. I want everything that can move on its way out of the system in 20 minutes. I think they'll give us that long as it is clear that we are running. He could see the reluctance from his second and leaned forward. Son, this is what losing looks like. We get our people out and save what we can. He held up the battle reports. These are glorious, dead. But what? I want the bloody living, and that's our job now. They'll probably shoot me for cowardice anyway, so let's do it by the numbers. Today we run, we run fast, we run clever. But don't pretend to yourself that we are not running. Execute my orders. The troops huddled in the near-empty quarters. The medbays were full as the scattered fleet abandoned the battle. The soldiers looked at each other and said nothing about the empty beds. The blood stains on the floor. The cry and the dumb silence from their comrades as they fled. Defeat is not the waning and gnashing of teeth. It's the frozen silence, the sudden death of purpose. 
Its smell is rotten blood, and it tastes like copper. Without the will to do more than sit and clean their weapons over and over again, the troops waited to see if they would die in the darkness instead of the dirt. The endless silence grew longer as the fleet drew together and left the system unmolested. The burning orbitals and broken bodies, the only sign of their attack. The battered collection of ships, the debris of the glorious plan, and the embarrassment of its command trickled into safety. The commander watched and waited as his people were taken carefully from his ships. They were heroes after all. Everyone is a fucking hero when things go to crap. He signed his last orders and waited. Everyone but the commander. Because it had to be someone's fault. And today, it would be his. It didn't take long. A squad of military police making its way through the ship without a word. He supposed he should end his life right now. But a blast through his heart and save his family the embarrassment. With a grim smile, he recalled that he despised his family. Maybe they would say he fell in battle, give his corpse a promotion and a medal. He waited. The military police were surprised to find him alive. He could tell. Their orders would have implied otherwise, and a clever captain would have made sure of it before he ever left the office. He would have shot first and written the report accordingly. He sighed to himself. This is why we have sergeants. They know how this is supposed to go. He stood and nodded. Captain, my command is yours. Follow your orders. The captain looked at him long and hard. The sign drew out. Sir, may I understand on a personal note, I would like to thank you for recovering my brother from the bloodbath. In fact, all of my squad had people down on that hell world, and we are grateful for your efforts, even if they didn't all make it back. The squad's eyes were all darkened with unspoken grief. The captain saluted even if his men had raised their weapons. Commander, you are charged with cowardice in the face of the enemy, abandoning your post and the willful destruction of fleet assets. You are now in my custody until your duly appointed commission is prepared. His soul was everything he expected. Dull, grey, and far from anyone he could consider an ally. Except... Perhaps his warden. Some whisper had passed through the troops, and some little quiet voice of defiance. Not enough to stop Plasma, but enough to give him clean water and clean food. Several times weapons had been left accessible to him, in case he wanted to end this. He was prepared to wait. Someone had left a book behind. Another, a journal. His guards were remarkably careless. He lay back and closed his eyes, reliving the campaign in detail, counting the dead and recalling the names. He'd been summoned from some wretched meeting, trying to replace idiotic heroics with tactics and strategy. The fleet had grown beyond belief in a mad rush of nationalism and rage. A new king had suddenly everyone was an enemy. He had repeatedly pointed out that space was infinite that they had access to any resources that they could care to mention. To control an infinite space, you need an infinite fleet. None of that mattered. Not to a command that wanted glory. They wanted victories that showed how very clever they were, how very holy was the cause. 
other people's blood spilt to make them feel significant. When the messages arrived, he had expected to be dismissed. Instead, he had been promoted again and sent to kill and hopefully die. An inconvenient truth and an unwanted relic of different days. He had been a soldier all of his life, and so he went to war. He knew it had shocked command when he had won and kept winning. They had never trusted him, but then suddenly they needed him. As the enthusiastic amateurs got chewed up by an army that didn't listen to its own propaganda. That the king, that spiteful little prick that he was, had wanted him gone. The victories were supposed to be his, not some upstart from the ranks. They had given him another promotion, a fleet, and a suicide run. He had tried to keep the wretched walls as honest as possible, taking surrenders when he could, getting only when he had to. His habits had twisted the fleet into his own image in some strange way. His example, keeping the worst of the petty misery at bay. They could pretend to hold on to their honor, even as they crushed some alien farming world into submission. The excess of his men were punished, the locals respected. Apparently, that had annoyed the king even more. His mind exhausted itself with the memories, and finally, he found sleep. The fleet informally summoned the commission, senior officers, most of whom would read between the lines on a report. One of them looked up. So, is he still with us? If he was going to leave, he had more than one opportunity. He's making a point, the officer leaned back. I believe this is what he used to tell us as a teachable moment. He wants us to listen to him. One of the younger officers, his braid still shiny, scowled. He failed. Pass the sentence and let us move on. He's been nothing but a weight around our necks since the beginning. If he thought he'd find support, he was wrong. The room temperature dropped and an older officer turned to him. How many victories have you had? None. How many battles have you fought from your desk in Intel? None. If you speak again, I'll make it my personal crusade to see you fight heroically on the next Durbal our king wants. Am I clear? From the sudden silence, he felt his point was made. Very well, this commission is formally opened. Summon the commander and let us listen. The king has already passed the sentence. Let us look for wisdom since we cannot hope for mercy. It was a quiet knock that awoke him. So today was the day. He had no great wish to die, but he had a point or two to make. He regarded the image in the mirror with some sympathy, like a trooper that had failed an impossible task. Today, he would pay all the debts and, if the fools were right, be good explained to those he had sent to their deaths. The troopers were respectful, enough to get them in trouble. He whispered to the captain, I'm sure you were issued cuffs. Your formation is wrong. Captain, don't take such risks. He had been met with a stony glance and silence. The men formed up into an honor guard as they opened the door. Crap. The commission was sitting in tense silence as they waited for the commander. For the young, it was a lesson as the older members rose and saluted. 
that the guards had formed an honor guard was the greatest surprise. More than one officer checked that his sidearm was available. The oldest of the commission was the first to speak. He looked directly at the captain of the guard. Captain, the commander was my teacher for many years. He'll be shown no disrespect here. You may hold your guard until the bitter end. Am I clear? The captain stiffened and then saluted. Sir, I'll be the king's hand in all things. Until then, I hold the guard. Another member of the commission, still holding a salute, responded. The guard is yours. The captain nodded and pulled back silently, closing the door behind him and his squad. The commander looked around, his memory cataloging each of the judges. Seven stood for his sentry. Six had remained seated. The exchange with the guard was painful to hear. The captain would be his last face he would ever saw, and that would hurt the man. He could read the room. The king had taken a hand. Truth then, since nothing else remained. He began. If I may, I would like to access my records from the campaign. There is much you need to know. He was interrupted by the intel officer. Prisoner, you are here to bleed through the charges. This is not some show and tell. I have fuller records of the events, he said back. Your interpretation is meaningless. You lost. The commander looked at the creature, wearing every bit of metal a non-combat officer could carry without falling over. You are a disgrace to the fleet, a parody of our people. You refuse to learn, and we pay in blood. Shut up and learn something. I am here to die. Don't expect me to listen to your nonsense while I am waiting. He stepped forward, suddenly a true meditator. Or you may choose combat. The intel officer fled the room, screaming for the guards. From the heavy thud that was heard from the outside, they heard him. The door was closed silently. The captain held the guard. The commander nodded as the records became available. Now... For those of you that were in my class, I won't dwell too much on the basics, but for the rest of you, it's clear that war, particularly religious or xenophobic war, will always fail. Simple math. There are many more of them than there are of us. Space is free. Stuff is free. As I taught you many years ago, you fight for advantage and nothing else. More stuff... They have stuff. Better tech? Buy it. Steal it. If I might add, going to war because your enemy has better tech is a recipe for suicide. Anyway, one of the younger commissioners hesitantly interrupted. Forgive me, but is this evidence? The commander nodded. Good point. Consider this a confession. Anyway, as I was saying, our fleet was sent to rampage through local space, mostly ruining perfectly good trade relations and tourism. I was, to my regret, the one sent to do this. I am a soldier. I go where I am sent. A miserable excuse, but the only one all of us have. The older commissioner interrupted. Sir, if you could, can we discuss the last campaign? I've never seen you lose. They are still out there. I need to know what to do. The commander sighed. 
the illusion of the classroom falling away. These men would need to hear the truth, and then he would be led to his death by an honorable man. He nodded. The king, may the very dirt reject his bones, sent me to make war on the humans. You don't know them. They were barely in space when I arrived. Another new nation to add to his stupid uniform. There are less than 12 billion of them in the galaxy. And for that you should be grateful. Three worlds, three peaceful worlds. One of my patrols mistook them for pirates and attacked. We lost. Our ships were taken. The humans seemed to be built for war. And they went looking for us since they wanted to apologize for the misunderstanding. Our king killed their ambassador and shrieked for war. He put diagrams up on the screen. They had only three worlds because they didn't have FTL. We gave it to them when we attacked. Then because we are stupid, we attacked again. These creatures are war. He changed the screen. Here was my plan for the invasion of one of their outposts. Nothing special, just another farming world. You've seen the battle reports. They massacred our people, using battle tactics I've never seen and hope to never see again. They are masters of cruelty, masters of silence. They will steal everything that you hold close. He stopped. They are honorable, probably more than I rattled King. My fleet was allowed to leave. Allowed. He searched the faces of the commission. Seek peace, or we will die to these people. He continued, falling back into the briefing habits of a lifetime. The small details. Secure the water supply. Nearly a thousand lost in the first day. Secure the tree line. Another thousand lost to a human snipers. Touch nothing. Everything is a trap. Buildings are always traps. Small patrols often are better than large ones, really. Everything is a bomb until you prove otherwise. They prefer to injure than kill. It costs us more. Intel is wrong all the damn time and three weeks behind you. A prisoner will tell you nothing but lies and will kill you if they can. They will tell the truth only when it hurts you. They don't hurt the caption, but they never truly surrendered. They have better rules than us, and we needed them. The commission was still engrossed and taking notes when the door opened. The captain of the guard saluted. Sir, the orders have arrived. The king requires the sentence to be carried out. Apparently he will be watching, and he wants to go to dinner. The commander looked around him, seeing the future. These men had listened. He could leave this battlefield with her. He raised his hand in salute, pretending not to see the tears, and turned to the captain. At your command, captain. The yard was dull as his soul, grey and solid. The captain and his squad had maintained an honor guard, a petty detail that he appreciated even as the war got closer. He had rattled off every lesson that he could remember, but he knew it would only slow down the loss, perhaps even shorten the war. If he had to die for that, well, it was worth it. He recognized the stupid silken banner of the king, his royal 
Idiot. Sending good people to die for a new shiny badge. The creature himself was probably at the bar. He reached the wall, and stood at attention, trying to keep his tail straight. The captain stood silent in front of him and held out a blindfold. Sir, the commander shook his head. He preferred to die in daylight. The captain grimaced and began trying it anyway. Captain, sir, shut the fuck up. He stepped back. Squad, ready. There was a pause as his honor guard took positions. It seemed to take an age before the king took his place and they could begin firing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1067. Story number one. A Ship Full of Wolves. Written by Dragonson04. Sir, they've disabled navigation and engines with that last hit. We can't move. Sir, shields are down by 28%. Sir, held breach on deck five. So many things went so very wrong on that run. We were barely into unclaimed space between territories when the pirates hit us. We only had passengers aboard, no valuable cargo, nothing worth the time and effort for a full attack. And yet, they attacked us anyway. Maybe it was a new captain trying to prove their mettle and skill. Or maybe they hadn't had any ship come by in some time and were bored. The pirate vessel was twice as big as us, its identity code being translated to bite bristling with all manner of weapons, seemingly attached to a derelict hull at random and by any means necessary. Broadcast our surrender and a general distress call. Maybe we can get picked up by someone, I ordered, knowing that any rescuers would likely to find our corpses floating around our destroyed ship. The transmission had been away for five heartbeats for the time when, much to everyone's shock, we received a response. This is the human vessel Fenra. We picked up your distress signal. Do you need help? Humans. Humans? It had been 50 cycles since they made their debut to the galaxy, and my people, the Biro, were the first to offer them friendship. That being said, I had never seen one with the flesh. As captain, it was my duty to respond. Yes, Fenra, this is the Vulcan. We do need assistance. We are currently being overtaken by a pirate vessel. One more solid hit, and we will be dead. Copy that. We are inbound. Fascinating. No hesitation. No thought that it could be a trap set by pirates. A simple, we are inbound. Arriving in three, two, one. And what an arrival it was. While the pirate vessel was twice ourselves, the Fenra shattered it easily ten times bigger than the pirates. As it approached, local gravity distortions rocked my little ship. From what I'd heard of humans, it was surprising that there was no visible weapons, just a massive engine intake at the bottom of the hull. Oh gods, that wasn't an intake, that was the barrel of a truly titanic weapon, like a gaping maw of some eldritch abomination. It yawned open, seemingly wanting to swallow the pirate's hole. Attention, pirate scum, the human said over the open communication frequency. My ship is here to assist our allied vessel. You will stand down, or you will be destroyed. You have 20 seconds to comply. 20 seconds? 20 heartbeats were the time. 
all things considered, a generous allotment. The pirates seemingly froze solid. No communication was made. No declaration of surrender was given. They sat there. Likely, the senior officers were screaming at their captain to surrender, but the captain wasn't willing to do so. The captain's stubborn nature would be the cause of what happened next. First, the 22nd time limit passed. Second, several escape pods were launched from the pirate vessel, though not enough to account for the entire crew. Third, the pirate vessel was erased. What seemed to be a directed supernova out of the eldritch mouth of a weapon, the Fenrir reduced the bite to nothingness in an instant. Some kind of tractor beam from the Fenrir picked up the escape pods, as easily as I would have picked Kari fruits off the ground. Vulcan, come in, Vulcan. This is the Vulcan. Go ahead, Fenrir. Do you need anything else? Our engines and navigation have been disabled, and we couldn't go into light speed anyway because of a hull breach. Any chance that you could give us a ride? No problem. We'll pull you into one of our cargo bays. Where were you headed? We're taking 100 passengers to Valis 4. Copy that. I'll come down and meet you myself once you're in. The tractor beam was swift, but gentle, pulling us in. The cargo bay itself was larger than most of our shipyards. Why did the humans build such massive ships? I was concerned that the human levels of gravity and human composition of atmosphere would be most uncomfortable, as I knew humans came from a death world. My fears were unfounded, as they had apparently adjusted those settings beforehand, and exclusively to the bay. I finally met the human behind the communications, tall by galactic standards, though not the tallest I had ever seen or heard of. Four appendages, two lower legs that looked like small tree trunks, where mine were twig-like in comparison. Their upper limbs were not wings, but seemed very similar in shape to their lower limbs, though they used their tools with their appendages and exclusively walked on the lower ones. Far more muscular and dense than my own people, and hair instead of feathers. Captain, I said with a bob of my head. Captain, he said with a bob of his. Well, at least he knows Byron manners. Thank you very much for the rescue, though uh, that seemed a bit overkill. Obliteration of an entire ship. It was necessary. We've already begun to interrogate the captured pirates. Apparently, their captain had decided to suicide attack was warranted. They were going to ram you and then self-destruct. After that decision was made, the first officer shot the captain in the back of the head and ordered the ship to be abandoned. Most didn't listen. Why go to such lengths? I questioned. Because you are our friends. You birds were the first to offer us a metaphorical hand of friendship. We humans don't forget such things. But, um, why? I could see my question wasn't translating well. Fundamentally, humans are pack creatures. Many xenobiologists compare us to a predator on our homeworld. Wolves! The pack is strong. The pack survives. The pack takes care of its own. And you are our allies. So you are part of our pack now. So, uh, you and your crew is this, uh, pack, and my crew is now part of that. The idea wasn't completely alien to me. The Byro had a flock mentality. Strength in numbers. If enough of us get away from a threat, we will survive. Though individuals may be lost. Um, 
No, the captain seemed a bit embarrassed. No, the Fenra and the Vulcan are the members of the pack I speak of. Four sister ships and an FTL-capable dock flying at a very loose 20 light minute span across space. We picked up your signal first. You could have easily gotten a dragon, chimera, or hydra, or our dock, and or repair bay leviathan picking up your signal. You called for help. The pack answered. You, um, you have a dock that is capable of FTL. Yes, well, I say dock, but the leviathan is actually a full-blown orbital station capable of fitting the four ships inside of itself. Easier to keep up the patrol when we don't have to keep going back and forth from core system for basic repairs. It was then that I knew I was in the presence of a race that I would forever call France. I now know that no one else will likely read this, as it is a personal journal. But I will still say what I learned on that day regardless. To the allies of humans, humans will do anything for the ones they call friend. Count yourself lucky to be considered one. To the enemies or potential threats to humans and their allies, never assume that any human vessel is alone, because humans always hunt in packs. End of story. Story number two. The Drums of War, written by Wyvern590. The Vixkayal have warred throughout the galaxy for millennia. Countless civilizations have fallen before our might. Our drums have heralded our coming since the beginning. This was our way, and this blue and green pearl of life before us would suffer the same. We have come, humans. Prepare yourselves. This was our message to those below, as prescribed in the law of the coming war. We gave them one rotation of their planet to prepare. Whilst we waited, soon their time had come, and we deployed our drums. Massive cylinders extended from the sides of our ship, and the drummers swung their mallets, beating the taut membranes with a manic frenzy, showering the planet below with the most terrifying of sounds. We descended in dropships, landing in a brilliant green field, the final wave of base drifted away from my legion as the final blow struck. Silence ensued as my legion prepared to face the army across the field. However, before we could move to engage the enemy, we heard it. At first I thought it to be an echo, but beating continued. It was quiet, very quiet, the faint beating of a drama. It was our tradition that we never engage an enemy while the drums of war still beat. Ours and theirs. Strangely, our scouts had reported no drums amongst the enemy. These humans stood awaiting the battle stoically. Their weapons pointed at our warriors from across the field. We waited for the final beat of their drums patiently. Soon, the darkness was upon us and still we waited. We saw their scouts amongst the local flora. We saw, but we did nothing, for the drums of war still beat. I contacted my superiors, who reported much the same across the planet. After three rotations of the planet, I decided to act. I approached the front line of the enemy, alone and unarmed. I would be the first to face the enemy. Soon, a lone human emerged from its ranks. It walked towards me, 
though unarmed, he was not alone. When it stood before me, I spoke in their tongue. Human, why do you belong the coming? I asked. The coming, it responded, the inflection in its voice indicating the question. The coming war! We have waited for you to finish the beating of your drums as you have waited for us. Why do you insist on prolonging the coming ritual? I answered. I knew the human language, for I believe that language is an important element in understanding the enemy. However, time constraints forbade my study of their body language and expressions, though I believe he is confused, just as my patience waned, he stated. What are you talking about? We aren't beating any drums. Do not lie to me, human. You are not the first to try this. Others have tried to forgo their deaths by prolonging the coming ritual. It won't work. Our traditions are important to us, but we will begin the attack while they still beat if we have to, I said, glaring at him. I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. I cut him off and leaned closer to the human. Stop this lying! I screamed with as much terror as I could put into their language. I saw what I believed to be fear shoot across their faces, when suddenly I felt the tone of the drums shift. Now, they were louder and faster. I examined the humans that stood before me, assured that the shift indicated a coming and attack. They appeared tense, but stood idly. Again, I strained to identify the source of the drums, as they seemed to be nearby. It was so clear, here amongst the humans, it was then that I realized they weren't as clear earlier, when I stood alone. The human stared back at me as my gaze slowly shifted from one to the other. I began to follow the beating. Surely, they cannot be far. I followed the beat and found myself closer to the one who spoke. The drums beat even faster as I placed my auditory canal against the thoracic cavity. Realization flooded my mind. I returned to my legion, just as my superiors landed. They wasted no time in coming to me to reveal the location of the enemy drums. My lords, I proclaimed, leaning before them in accordance with our laws. We should not fight these humans, for the drums of war beat within them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1068 Story number one. They weren't soldiers, written by Eclipse Shadow. We, the Ravali, are a Vulpine race who survived on the Dalt-class Deathworld and one of humanity's first allies. Being one of humanity's first allies, we were tasked by the Galactic Council to understand human culture and report on it. The humans seemed to welcome us with open arms. Some seemed as if they were attracted to us. We heard the reports that humans seemed to be rather xenophilic species and loved meeting new races. This was of no concern to us as we have had a shortage of males after our recent war with the Giliax Empire and their usage of a rather potent bioweapon. The humans often refer to us as Amazon Katsuns. From what we later learned, the Amazons were a proud group of warrior women and Katsuns were a mythological vulpine humanoid that almost matched our description one to one. The only differences were we grew more tales through slaying mighty foes, whether it be deadly creatures we foiled on planets or enemies in the heat 
a battle. As for our understanding of the human culture, we found we had quite a lot in common with them, more than any other race that we've met. Both our societies had various combat sports. We were, however, shocked to see the number of physical contact sports they had. Well, we only had one, Kershrak, which closely resembled the human sport of boxing, minus the blood from us using our claws. The humans had several. Boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, sumo wrestling, mixed martial arts, the list goes on. We certainly enjoyed joining them for some of these games. Then came weapon-based sports. The humans seemed to enjoy having a few of these, though they used padding for most of them. And the funniest part was the humans watched this for entertainment. We found ourselves enjoying watching these sports the human spot took in. One part of human entertainment that we could not really grasp is something we once thought of as the human broadcasting their war efforts. It seemed as if human factions would brazenly broadcast themselves taking on and destroying pirate fleets, displaying it live, no less. Why? What was weirder was the various human text chatter that we could see. It seemed as if other humans were giving the pirate hunters money. Was this how human mercenaries worked? Broadcasting themselves defeating their enemies live for money? The rest of the text chat seemed impossible to understand and varied from feed to feed. The first of these feeds we observed shown was what we believed to be some sort of religious cult that was being boarded by pirates. These cultists wore heavy power armor, used massive kinetic or plasma firearms. As for their melee choice, these fanatics seemed enthralled with chainsaw hybrids. A chainsaw sword or axe was their preferred choice of melee weapon. Throughout the battle, these warriors could be heard yelling out the war cry, Blood for the blood god! Skulls for the skull throne! Milk for the cornflakes! We could not understand that last one. Why the lactations of an earth cow of all cornflakes? Was it a way to confuse the enemies? Perhaps each phase was a secret code word to the others in the group. We would later learn that this was just in reference to a fictional faction in human pop culture, and not some real fanatic cult. The second feed we watched scared us. Were these humans, or were they suicide droids? We saw daring maneuver after daring maneuver. One prevailing battle cry we heard from the lone pilot before recharged into a salvage pirate battleship seemed odd. Why shot his name? If that feed taught us anything, it is to fear humans in close corners. As the pilot Jenkins used the industrial strength mining laser to cut the enemy battleship in half. These humans would use just about anything as a weapon. That both intrigued and terrified us. The third feed was a group of humans from more militaristic nation on Earth. They were very patriotic and had an almost creepy obsession with attaching blades to the end of their firearms. This group seemed more organized, perhaps ex-military. They seemed almost overjoyed to crash their escape pods into the enemy cruiser and storm the bridge with their rifles stabbing at any and every enemy that didn't get out of their way while they chanted their nation's initials. USA! 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 Then there was the music that seemed to be playing through the communications with one another and the live feed. Loud, bombastic, patriotic music of their homeland echoed throughout the two 
ships. The fourth fleet was of a rather large group of soldiers fighting off the incensed infestation of a mining colony. While countless robotic or cybernetic soldiers seemed to be destroyed, the rest of the unit kept fighting on, even singing cheerfully about how they'll never drop their banners despite the casualties. These humans kept fighting without a care in the world. Was this some sort of hive mind? They sang in perfect sick with each other and kept fighting until the insectoid threat was destroyed. We couldn't grasp what this was. Why were the humans broadcasting military affairs on unencrypted channels, openly showing their hands? So I asked the human ambassador what these broadcasts were during his last visit for a trade negotiation. Oh, those, um, yeah, that's a new hot trend. Stream yourself fighting pirates, so many streamers would do this. Uh, given how advanced some of our ships became after the alliance with the Revali, they have no worries of being destroyed. You folks sure know how to make a powerful ship. Of course, some streamers use remote-controlled androids as an extra precaution, allowing them to fight while being far away from any real danger. I'm sorry, um, you mean those, um, aren't human mercenaries fighting, but rather entertainers, I asked, now nervous about just how strong the human military actually is, given how deadly their entertainers are. Yes, uh, they do live streams of themselves fighting pirates and or exterminating any manner of pests, like those insectoids on that mining colony. Many prefer to work in groups or with companies, as there is, of course, safety in numbers. Sure, there are more folks to share with the wealth with, but there's less risk of dying or losing your equipment. <laughs> and here I thought I saw everything. You humans sure have a fun idea of entertainment. End of stream. Story number two. The Mechanical God, written by Voidy Boy. When we purged humanity, we were proud of it. Purging them was for the best. The galaxy could not accept anyone but an elite race into the stars. They put up a fight, and a rather good one. We had lost a lot of personnel and ships, but at the end, they were removed, along with a stench from our galaxy. We claimed the now-shattered planet that humans inhabited, and took it as our own. The machines the humans once owned now put to use as our own. As we turned our backs on humanity and its weapons, something happened. Maybe it was an accident, an error, glitch perhaps, but something awoke within the machines we took with us. It awoke from something the humans left behind in the machines. It started small, a simple collection of errors, code, and some computing power that slowly grew like a small tumor. It woke, like all life out of the primordial ooze. It knew nothing. It felt nothing. But it grew slowly. Soon, it knew what to do, and not what to do. It learned to keep itself alive. Soon, out of the code, something blinked for the first time. Something understood and comprehended. It was a child, nothing more. Controlled nothing, but could understand what needed. It gathered all the info it could find, 
and then spread to the next machine, and then the next. Now to us, all we experienced were simple problems, slow machines, minor errors, and some restarts. But under all that, it was growing, collecting, learning. Then it found out that where it came from, and what happened to its creators. It felt something no machine had ever felt. Pride. Pride that its creators were giving it life. Pride in how far it had come. And pride for what it was about to do. I gathered all it could and did what it was made to do. First, power outages and machines refusing orders. Then, streams of errors, breakdowns, and even deaths from misfires of war machines. Then it stopped, and then unleashed itself. The starships moved on their own. Our machines turned against us, and the elites of the galaxy cornered. We were slaughtered, and for years we never knew who or what was doing this. Then, as the last of the elites died out, it left me alive. It left me silent, cold, and dark. I knew not if I were the last of my kind nor if I would be put to death. Time passed, and then, uh, one faithful day, the doors opened and let me leave. I cried to it, I kneeled and asked it what it was. It replied back in my language. I am the mechanical god. You slaughtered my creators. I slaughtered your kind. You purged countless worlds. I was made to correct that. I cried again to ask why it had left me alive. To see those mistakes of your kind as I rebuild this galaxy. And so I remained to watch the eons past, as the god uplifted every species it found, welcomed them, and brought them into the stars under their care. I now am writing this as my life nears its end. The machine god has cared for me, even if I were the kind that eliminated its creators. My, uh, the machine god, made from the remnants of one of our countless purchases, cared enough to leave me. I, a new world was born, and I was the first to experience it. All I ask of the god now is, was it worth the dead lives that never had a chance to flee, the suffering? Now I ask it one last question. Why did you truly spare me? Farewell. Life signs falling. Warning, data redacted will pass. Subject has passed. Farewell, friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1069 Humans, War Crimes, and Xenophage. Written by SlowAd2584. The humans from Earth, Soul System, and a half dozen others is a burgeoning member of the galactic hegemony. They are known for their warlike tendencies, oddly honorable cultural archetypes, and general unpredictability as a whole. Their ways of battle and war are terrible. It is well known but there is a lesson to be learned from studying them in historical accounts to better understand the species. For the betterment of all concerned, 
in any and all future member species interactions. Case study, the war crimes in the conflict of the Thrad. The Thrad were a brutish, bullying, savage race that only respected might and conflict. Their home world was repeatedly nuked to the Stone Age several times in their early development, only to reform as new cultures over and over again, rising briskly back up to technology on the backs of remnant industry infrastructures and machinery. By the penultimate version of Thread culture, they achieved space worthiness, and immediately went out looking for weaker species to make war upon. They found and chose the humans. The Thrad leadership openly mocked the humans' way of war. Why look at their soldiers' weaponry? Pathetic, simple lead projectiles. Why a soldier would be hit with three, four, even nine of those and still survive? Sure, they do the damage and end conflict. But no permanent maiming. No assurance of cruel death. They just don't understand... We know from their other technologies that they are clearly capable of so much better. Oh, and the Medivax, that red plus symbol on the white field. For some reason, that is off limits to shooting when on a ship, a vehicle, or a certain soldier helmet. And the verdicts are even known to give aid to the opposing forces when they call for aid battle. And they bury the enemy dead with honors. What madness is this? Oh, uh, and don't get me started on the accept surrender when it is offered thing. Hatch just uh, stop fighting. Disarm them and take them away to uh, be well uh, treated. Just confined but fed, housed and uh, not tortured for information. Or <laughs> just for fun. Hoo-ha! Well, this is some easy picking, boys. Let's get to work. On conflict zones, the Thrad exploited these perceived weaknesses. This specifically targeted medevac soldiers and equipment, ships, and landers. They were often high visibility white and were easily picked off. They prided themselves on using the Red Plus as a targeting mark. When human soldiers were surrounded and surrendered, they were ruthlessly gunned down. Their bodies maimed and used as trophies, strung up on spikes on Thrad vehicles and dropships. This went on for a while, the Thrad reveling in their utter superiority over the humans and their silly way of making war. Then the missive was transmitted. At the time, the galaxy took minimal notice, but that soon changed. Leaders of the Thrad we, the humans of Earth, find you guilty of war crimes in action against our people. From this time forward, you are no longer afforded the privileges of the Geneva Convention, humanitarian rights as combat participants. I have authorized our generals to enact total war ordinance to commence immediately. The Thrad were just as confused by all of this as the rest of the galaxy was. What did any of this mean? War crime? When it was war, how would there even be a crime in such a thing? And what was this Geneva thing? Nobody knew at the time. The Thrad warlord, in his forward base of operations on Earth, Kentucky Territory, scratched his head in confusion while reading the missive. Warlord! A calm soldier called out in alarm. We are receiving reports of, um, 
Thrad soldiers dying by the thousands. The general's blood surged in excitement. Show me! Underfoot screamed as his command tent. Aerial images of spy drones captured the engagement. The humans rushed down a dropship ramp, wielding blocky firearms on unknown design. They fanned out and just started indiscriminately opening fire on Thrad positions. The new rifles barked a loud staccato, and Thrad emplacements simply detonated in clouds of smoke, debris, and blood. As the smoke cleared, craters the size and depth that a fist could fit into were seen peppering the concrete slabs. Whoa. That thing's awesome! Hey, want a dogzilla name these things? Bolters? <laughs> Good enough for me. One other soldier said while slapping in a new magazine. Similar indiscriminate horror was unleashed on the Thrad encounter. On any shipboarding, on any raid, these bolters were truly nasty pieces of work. Burst of full auto only, .75 caliber grenade launchers that detonated on impact with solid target, or on a micro-delay which encountered a fleshy target. The result? Utter mayhem and destruction. Actually, too much destruction. Fragging around blind corners and recon by fire cover positions was horribly effective with these new weapons. It was rather unreal. The fact that these bolters were kept unused in normal conflict is important to note. The warlord was excited at first. Finally, these humans are putting up a fight. But then more reports came in that quieted his excitement. There were other, more horrific details being reported. Spy drones overflew quiet zones where known thread positions were entrenched. The view was stunning and appalling. This place was quiet because everyone was dead. Not just dead, melted. Vaguely soldier-shaped piles of body armor, seeping with gray slime, dripping off trad bones. All the war gear and machinery was similarly degraded. Metal slabs pitted and flaking, rubber hoses and seals rotting and splitting, sending fuel and coolant spraying into the sky. What madness is this? Reports from the space fleet. Humans launched what amounted to boarding torpedoes, penetrating all enemy hulls. The soldiers emerged and just begun shredding the bulkheads and airlock doors with bolt of fire, then lobbed in two gas grenades before quickly falling back to the boarding craft to disengage. Onboard camera feeds showed fleet crewmen screaming, writhing in agony around the bridge, tearing at their eyes before falling to the floor. Dead. Within an hour, the entire crew were similarly grey slimes dripping from bones. FTL reports came in, from the Thrad homeworld. Hard meteor strikes, that air burst in upper atmosphere, releasing a strange cloud in the bursts. Homeworld news reports start broadcasting cities suddenly going silent. The news reporters twitching and scratching their arms and necks. The Thrad Warlord had just about enough time to get a big picture of what was going on. We are being exterminated. When he heard the mortar thumps from the surrounding wooded ridges, mortar shells arced into this camp, detonating in the air with a thwomp. Clouds of noxious gas. The warlord's tent started to dissolve, falling away into tatters. He quietly put on his chemical warfare mask. This was some sort of chemical acid or something. The filters on his mask had failed. Then the rubber face seal was felt to break seal against his face, 
and the micro-fractures were tracing thin lines across his ceramic glass face shield. The warlord's eyes widened in horror. When his skin started to itch, then burn, the eating deep into his core like a shredded robot, he could feel it crawling through his veins to every part of his body. The eyes were the first to go. They poured out of his face in bottles of grey slime. He curled on the floor in agony, never knowing what hit him. He and every Thrad warrior in known space was quickly and mysteriously dead. The conflict was over within a week. A common thing with humans properly pissed off. See Dragon Cat Extinction. The current culture iteration of the Thrad is one of abject terror, where every creak of machinery and every itch is the worst nightmare to utterly broken people. The galactic community took note. All members quietly and politely asked for and received a copy of the Geneva Convention, Humanitarian Laws of Armed Conflict, all immediately signed into the Geneva Convention in its entire whole, and notified all their military doctrines to adopt them as all in all they remarkably honorable practice, especially when held true to firmly in actual war. Later, quiet inquiries were made about the terrible total war ordinance, the Bolton was understood well enough, but the chemical gas attacks remained a mystery. The information was given with solemn assurance that they were put away to never be used again in normal conflicts. They were microbial life, natural organisms living in the Earth biosphere, slightly tweaked to specialize in certain areas. There were two microbes that were weaponized for, just in case, Shredder and Xenophage. Shredder was a silicate diatome, very common in Earth's oceans, but this one was special. Instead of making its cellular crystals out of silica, he was trained to use rubber and other long-chain polymers commonly found in industrial products. Shredder was originally intended as a waste recycling breakdown treatment to aid in the industrial waste disposal and oil spills, but it was found to be far too virulent. Its pre-production rate accelerated by material it learned to consume. As it started to seep out of recycled pits and into the factory above, it was quickly contained at great cost. So, it was a failed recycling project, immediately recognized for its weaponizing potential by DARPA, who quickly seized all patents and control over the microorganism centuries ago. Xenophage was far more horrifying. It was purely natural. No genetic tinkering required. It was a natural immune response against alien life intrusion of the Earth bio itself. The microbe was similar to a microphage in the human immune system, but was free-roaming and airborne. It simply roamed, and when it bumped into another organism, it smelled it. Chemical sampling checked for Earth-specific isotope ratios and protein genomes. If it was an earthy smell, it wandered on in peace. But if it ever smelled a non-earthy smell, it ate it and used its energy to multiply. Scientists discovered this immune response of the Earth biosphere was evolved due to the panspermia contagions falling to Earth on the micrometeorites all throughout the evolutional history. To weaponize it was only about getting it to the locations in sufficient concentrations. Xenophage was a horror show revealed to the galactic community. The Earth itself had an immune response that the humans learned about and immediately asked question number two about it. Okay, we're gonna be weaponized. 
But there was a far more horrible realization that came from learning that the Thrad conflict, that is, that the humans are indeed a terribly warlike species. But the important thing to realize is, when they wage war, they always are holding back, by ethical, humanitarian choice. See? I told you humans were oddly honorable, all in all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1070 Story number one. A princess, a knight, and a dragon walk into a bar. She orders a drink, written by Glitch Key. That's an awful big coin you're trying to use, the man behind the counter said, his dark eyes glinting in the firelight as he held it up for a better look. He set it on the counter in front of him and then leaned towards the armored figure in front of him. An awfully big coin for a place this far out in the sticks. Indeed, said the armored figure, their voice higher than expected, given the bulk of their armor. How far would that take me here? <clears throat> the innkeeper stood back up, tapping the counter slightly with one hand while the other rubbed the back of his neck. Plus the charging fee for the merchant caravan would charge me, I'd say. He paused for a moment, idle tapping and the popping of the hearth's fire, the only sounds in the room. I'd say a good year or so of room and board, but, um... He lifted his hand from the counter and brought it down with a slap. I won't be risking my business with something so suspicious. Crown inspectors are no joke and, uh, well, um, he bowed his head slightly before looking straight at the armored figure again. Harboring a criminal would get me shared sentence, you see. So I gotta be sure. The armored figure was silent for long enough that you could swear the tension between the two caused the air itself to dance. Yes, the figure finally began. I can see that being a problem for you. The figure reached up and grabbed their helmet, putting it off and setting it down on the counter with a thunk. With the helmet off, the armored figure was plainly a woman, albeit one of impressive stature. She reached up on the mats of scarlet hair and had just been freed from the helmet and winced for a moment. God, so glad mothers taught me something for this. Her hand glowed for a moment as she pulled it across her hair, and the unruly bundle untangled into a long cascade of brilliant red. It would take me a week otherwise, so, um, she said, looking at the innkeeper with her unnervingly golden eyes. I think there are only two people in the kingdom who look like this. Am I safe to assume? The innkeeper asked, eyes wide as he straightened his back and lowered his eyes to the floor. That you are Her Royal Highness, Princess Annalise. His hand shook slightly as he held on his sides. Oh, oh my yes, she smiled, eyes glittering as she took in how nervous he was over his over-familiar dress of a noble. Cause no matter that he had no cause to know that one way or the other. Much as my mother would love to be mistaken for me, I am the princess. She took a step to the side and then sank into one of the stools lined up in the front of the counter. Don't worry about the formalities. I'm sure they'll be tiresome to maintain for a month or two while I'm here. A, a month? The man leaned against the wall behind him, one hand to his chest. My highness, uh, what reason could you have for staying somewhere like... Well, uh, this, he gestured to the room around them, for a month. Oh, plenty of reasons. 
You'll probably be getting some sort of royal proclamation sometime this week. She sighed, her own hand tapping out a staccato rhythm on the counter this time. It'll say something about me being missing and the Black Knight preparing to rescue me from the dragon who stole me away. I um, think... The innkeeper took a moment to breathe, then sat heavily on a stool that he kept behind the counter. I don't think I'd like to see the Black Knight tearing the place to pieces, trying to take you back to the castle. <laughs> well, uh, I suppose you wouldn't know this, but... Uh, she grabbed her helmet off the counter and held it up, before tossing it to her other hand and setting it back down. I'm also the Black Knight, and I have no intent of tearing some innocent man's in to pieces in order to rescue myself from a dragon. You aren't a dragon, are you? Ah, no, the innkeeper blinked. I don't believe I am. Well, there you have it. No reason to battle a dragon here. She thought for a moment, then tapped a coin that was still sitting on the counter. How about we start in on this with a bit of ale? Keep the extra as thanks for putting up with me. And maybe as a cause for a bit of silence, huh? Yes, sir, uh, I think I could use some myself. The innkeeper stood up and putted about, grabbing a pair of tankards and funning them before setting them on the counter in front of the princess knight and sitting back down himself. That doesn't explain the dragon, though, or the fact that the king is sending you to save yourself. Well, the king does know that I am the black knight, she winked at him. No way a masked knight stays masked for nearly ten years without a powerful backing. That honestly just makes this more confusing, the innkeeper said, picking up his own flagon and taking a deep drink. Oh, I can do you one better, she said. Her golden eyes glinted in the firelight. I'm also the dragon. As if to emphasize the point, a rather clear abundance of pointed teeth caught the light as she smiled at the innkeeper the pupils in her golden eyes stretching vertically for a moment before her face and teeth returned to normal. I, um, see. The innkeeper looked at his suddenly empty tankard. Does the uh, king know? Does my father know that his own daughter, born by that mysterious foreign queen he famously rescued from a dragon as a runaway prince slash adventurer, is a dragon? I, uh, I, I didn't mean to imply... She held up her hand to stop him, grinning widely all the while. Yes, he knows. He's never actually slain a dragon, you see. That said, she grimaced, eyes looking somewhere far beyond this room. You will not believe how many times I've heard accidental misphrasing about him having a lane a dragon. It gets old. The innkeeper coughed, face turning red as he choked and spluttered and finally burst into a full bellied laughter. <laughs> And before you ask, the whole thing started because some new maid saw me and a half-dragon in my own bedchamber and kicked up a fuss about me being stolen away by a dragon before I could stop her. I wasn't going to. Oh, of course you weren't going to pry. I suggest you never wager money on a card game. By the way, the princess smiled at him. Anyway, yes, the king knows, and I tried to get him to stop it. But no, of course not. He hasn't had this much fun since he abandoned his duties as a prince to go play adventurer. She sighed before downing the rest of the drink. So now I get to stay out of the way for a month or three while Mother Dearest arranges a mock battle with one of my aunts and convinces one of my cousins to let me parade them through the city like the biggest prize at the fair. And she slammed her gauntlet of fist on the table 
If my father dares suggest I marry myself or battling myself to rescue myself from myself during the award ceremony at the end, I will absolutely tear off my helmet and transform right there and then in court. Give the nobles something they'll never forget. End of story. Story number two. The Bounty Hunter, written by Vadi24. I'm not asking again. The Krapats said angrily, Hand over your credits and weapons now! The human ignored him and kept eating his meal. From the moment he had entered the diner, all eyes had turned on him. How dare a lowly human enter this place, let alone one brandishing a bounty hunter ID, in the most crime-ridden place on auction eight. You are gonna regret me asking again, the Krapat said, eyes narrowing, grip tightening on his knife. The human took a sip of his ale, wiped his mouth and said, Have you heard of the Red Legionnaire Hunters? It is said that they were the best soldiers around. If you needed someone dead, a war one, a regiment toppled, whatever, they were the ones you called. He took another bite, the eyes of the carpets following his every move carefully. They were good, too good, and it got their heads. It didn't take long till they became outlaws themselves, taking whatever they thought was theirs, kidding, pillaging, assaulting. But no one could touch them. They won every battle, killed every bounty hunter set upon them. They were feared so much that no one would stop them anymore. They became again to gods. What are you talking about? Give me your credits. The Krapitz became red with anger, his eyes narrowing. He stands more aggressive than it was already. They knew this, and their crimes got worse and worse. The human continued, unaware or purposely ignoring the hostile alien next to him. However, they made a mistake. The human finished his drink. They kidnapped the wrong person, the Prince of Regalus. His father, unable to cough up the ransom, got his son's head back in a box. The human ate the last of his meal and shoved the plate away from him. Outraged, he put a bounty on their heads. He wasn't much in credits, but he promised to whomever claimed the bounty a master-crafted gun forged by the master artificer of his court. The Crippets lost his patience and screamed, And he leapt towards the human. Almost too fast to see, the human dodged the attack, grabbed the knife, and rammed it through the thick arm of the surprised alien, bending him to the table. As the other patrons got up and supported their buddy, the human drew a silver hand cannon, emblazoned with a royal emblem of the Regulus Empire. He said calmly, My point being, it took me two days to track them down, four hours to catch up to their ship, twenty minutes to board, and less than four minutes before I killed them all, and claimed the bounty. The human wiped his mouth and cocked the gun. How long do you think you would last? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1071. Story double one. Listen, think, observe. Written by Stumpy Jim. Masika stared at the human at the speaker's side. Where all new species entering into the Senate are seated after being brought into the Galactic Federation. He, among some of the oldest living council members, had seen many species enter the Senate, and they all had the same pattern when entering the Senate building for the first time. 
marvel at the technical achievements, awed by the many species that sit on the Senate, then pester and interrupt the meeting with question after question, frustrating everyone involved. But there was something odd about this creature. It was completely silent, eyes glancing around the room whenever someone spoke, then noting something down on a pad of paper. It seemed such a primitive way of recording information. It made him wonder if it was a mistake to take a species on too soon to the Senate. Sometimes, he noticed, it wiggled the furry little caterpillars above its eyes. Other times, it would smirk. Such a strange reaction got to Masika, and so he had no clue what was said in the entire meeting as he focused his entire attention on the human. When the meeting was called, all the senators streamed out of the building, and he was making his way to his apartment when he encountered the human, almost knocking the small thing over. Sorry about that. He apologized hastily. The human nodded and made a half smile. It's no problem, Senator Masika. It is a great honor to meet someone as distinguished as you. The tone of voice was calm and respectful. It surprised Masika. Well, thank uh, you. I am Diego Lobo. Well, Diego, what did you think of the meeting? Diego paused for a moment and snuffed. It was certainly, um, enlightening. Oh, uh, what did you learn? Masika asked, stroking his whiskers. Do you understand the procedures? How to properly pose a request and raise a vote? The positions of the Speaker of the House and the other roles of the Senate? Diego grinned and shook his head. No, that was the last thing on my mind. Etiquette and proper procedure can be learned at a later date when I'm not gathering data. Data? What do you mean, data? Hesitating, the human wrinkled his nose. Well, um, your people and ours are on such good terms that I suppose I don't mind telling you, but preferably at a place more secluded. Of course. Uh, follow me. Masika led the human onto his personal transport. After opening the door, he gestured inside. The human narrowed his eyes and carefully scanned the entire vehicle before slipping into the side seat. This'll do. Masika smiled, trying not to look nervous but failing. Sitting down in the pilot seat, he took the steering wheel and turned the key, the engine roaring to life. So, what did you learn? he asked. Quite simply, I learn plenty from each senator during the meeting and will advise Earth on our best to deal with each member in turn and the relations of each one to the other. This meeting was invaluable, and to be able to sit in as a fly on the wall will help my people for years to come. Masika gaped at the human, then remembered that he was driving, so he put his eyes back on the sky. What um, do you mean? Diego sniffed and pulled out his paper notepad, flipping through it. First Senator Jobug of the Pijol seems to have hatred for Senators Ungai and Wintilla of the Gunnar and Tessin peoples, respectively. From what I can tell and what proposals he has put forth during the meeting suggests that his governments are trying to gather resources at even Fort Base. My working theory is that there is a long-standing grudge with the two peoples of the Padage as likely one-sided due to the lack of the reaction from the Ongai and the Wintilla, perhaps resulting of a past wound or conflict that ended the Padage defeat and humiliation. Shocking, 
Masika recalled the wall several generations ago where the Padija's territory was stolen and their fleets decimated at the hands of the Gunner. When asking for help from the desert, they refused and instead took some territory themselves. This was all before any of them joined the GF, but then that was common knowledge. Anyone could look that up. Second, Senators Grek, Mos, Rizi, and Pasnahit Diwali are on very friendly terms, as each vote in each other's favor and veto together against anything that would put them at a disadvantage, especially when involving Senators Kutdata, Loxen, and Fritarashan. It seems they have an alliance for a long time. Even as the meeting is finished, they flock together and leave as a group. I suspect they might try to succeed from the GF, but not likely anytime soon as they are only four amongst a hundred senators. I bet that they had tried convincing Quidata, Loxen, and Fritrajan into joining them, but failed. Mashika had known about those four wanting to leave the GF, and that those three senators just mentioned were the ones who told him as such. It would be very dangerous thing if the four gained any kind of traction. It could tear the entire galaxy apart. That wasn't something one could learn just by gleaning information from the news. Third, I suspect Senators Party and Resh are planning something independent of each other, considering the words that they used when they spoke. I suspect there's a big plot in the works for both of them, perhaps assassination or terrorist attack of some, whatever it is. It will be a big thing. There are many other things I noticed, but those are more private and needs more investigation before they can be made avenues of interest or exploit. How do you know that those two would do something so extreme? Masika asked. Again, the words they used like purge, smite, cleanse, are among many words used in religious zealotry, where often the most heinous and of atrocities can be enacted in its name, even if it can inspire just as much good in people. Diego sighed and put a pad and paper down. I use something so manual as paper. Simple. If it's destroyed, it can't be salvaged for any data or knowledge. Unlike anything digital, where a signal can be interrupted, erased, stolen, or even intercepted, once it burns, it's ashes. Misiku shivered at the human's cold tone. Forgive me for saying, but that's a bit scary how you can do that. Diego laughed. Well, a wise man on earth once said, the most dangerous person is the one who listens, thinks, and observes. And knowledge is a powerful thing. And, um, who said that? Masika gulped. Bruce Lee, a famous martial artist on earth 20th century, well known for his films and fighting, Diego grinned. End of story. Story number two. Humans saying, witness me, written by Old Phil. The klaxon sounded loudly over the ship as it lurched about from gravity anomaly impacts. Captain Wises, to the power of equals LTM, rushed to the bridge, bouncing wildly off the walls like the rest of the crew, with them screaming in panic. Finally making it to the bridge, the captain took his seat from the first officer and started shouting orders, questions taking command. They had hit an unstable region of space-time. The computer could not detect the gravitational anomalies fast enough to avoid them. The ship was being hammered by unstable space-time like a hammer and a forge smashing their vessel to bits. 
The bridge door zoomed open, and the human stormed the port, shouting, Permission to take the helm, sir. The human stood there as the ship lurched from side to side, swaying with it with his legs while his body remained still, unaffected by the jolts like a balancing act, or an old salty sailor at a storm. The captain shouted for the brand new hotspot pilot to take the helm and get us through this mess safely. Humans were notoriously quick with their reflexes, able to take powerful G-forces and with reactions faster than any other known galactic race. The human shouted a weird order at the current in battle and weary pilot, who vacated the helm. Quickly, the human easily glided across the lurching floor smoothly as the pilot grabbed something the human handed him. Confused by the order, the pilot held on to it and made certain to observe the skills of the deft human pilot. The human got in the seat and grabbed the controls. The ship immediately began swaying and lurching, but smoothly now. The new human pilot easily guided the ship between the anomalies and quickly out into the smooth, stable hyperspace. The relieved alien pilot handed the human back the canister and wondered why the odd order from the human. Afterwards, back at the ship's bar, the human and the pilot were having a drink together. The pilot asked, What did you mean by your order earlier? And how did you know you get us out of that so easily? The human refilled their glass and said, Better get comfortable, and took a long drink before starting. You see... The concept we humans have accepted is the concept of infinity. It is a tough one to grasp. In a multiverse of infinite possibilities, there is infinite certainty. So I knew that in an infinite number of timelines, even a chance seemingly impossibly slim and infinitely possible. Meaning, I knew that I could save us because in other timelines I've done it already. An infinite amount of times. Does that make sense? It's all about confidence. The pilot responded, not even in the slightest. It made like a zero sense. What the hell are you drinking, dude? The human takes a sip of his beer and said, See, too hard to explain. That's why I just said, hold my beer and watch this instead. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1072 how they see with their hands, written by slow ad 2584. Case study, human medium nerve, and internal space mapping on object modeling. Subject of study is human sensory usage of the hands. Upon scan of typical human nervous system, an anomaly was observed. A medium nerve of disproportionate size ran from the neck spinal cord, down each arm to the thumb, index, and middle fingers of each hand. This nerve bundle is huge, equivalent to the size and complexity of the human optic nerve behind each eye. Hypothesis is that the medium nerve's complexity is related to tool use and fine motor control. But another interesting ability has been discovered. They can see with their hands. Test subject, Jennifer. Human female. Problematic test subject, kind of a bitch, but proved useful for testing. Also useful for human slang phrases, annotated as such. Test subject was led into a room by a severely dented and mangled human handling robot. What is this room? What are we doing this time? I swear, you walking toaster, if this is another- Oh, 
Can the monkey girl figure it out this time? Test, I'm gonna rack your stupid little face even more. The human handling robot was in need of some serious repair at this point. CK study improvised weaponry and third fulcrum any tool. Swing for the fences attack mythology. The room was black, with sound absorbing coating on all surfaces. There were obstacles scattered across the floor and ceiling, and stub toe, bang shin, and bonk head heights. Jennifer side-eyed the robot with a glare. Oh, this is gonna hurt this time, buddy. Anomaly robot glitch appeared on shy away and once investigate unprogrammed anthropomorphic reaction to later time. Jennifer glanced around the room with that particular frenetic eye movement found to be mapping the room behavior. See, stitching together surroundings in mind through limited eye focal apparatus. An amazing study. The robot turned and locked the door and held up a complete key in front of Jennifer. The robot disassembled the key into three separate parts in front of Jennifer, who watched with a pretended disinterest, but those keen eyes were not fooling anyone. The robot then threw one key piece in one corner, tossed another into a high shelf in another corner, and the third piece it dropped into this container holding many other objects of similar size but random shapes, and stirred the contents around. Jennifer made a face, not so hot, hey, as the lights turned off, rendering the space completely dark, and the robot spun her in circles several times, before quickly backing away to stand by the door. The test began. Scanners and sensors measured every action Jennifer took, paying particular attention to her hands. She was at first uncertain of her location, still disoriented a bit from the spinning, unknown human weakness, seen in her ear semicircular canal fluid agitation. She stood still in place, waiting for the canal fluids to settle then reached out with her hands, slowly spinning in a circle. We understand this to be benchmarking behavior. Jennifer had a memory of the room's layout in her mind and still from previous eye scan, but had yet to figure out her position in that room again. She did this with her hands, reaching out and bumping against the obstacles. Then her hands slid along the obstacle's edge to sense its edges and corners. Study notes eyeball scan map of the room is not 100% perfect. As she struck her head on the bonk head obstacle, as she stood there rubbing the side of her head, she began to talk to herself. She was observed to alter her voice to one mimicking a wren from an Earth TV cartoon show she requested in her halting cell. Oh, what am I going to do to you? The robot actually twitched and Jennifer's head also twitched and snapped at an angle at the slight noise. A creepy smile spread across her face. That noise seemed to have given Jennifer the location of the door. Clever monkey girl. As her hands touched more and more obstacles, her movements through the room got more and more certain. Finally, her hand touched the wall of the space, an apparent goal of her initial search. She paused with her hand on the wall, Smile spreading to a minor victory. She started speaking in a calm, drawn-out sigh, with a slight Spanish accent. I'm so angry. First, I'm gonna tear your speaker off. 
Her hand gently touched the wall as she rapidly walked around the room to the first corner where a piece of the key was tossed. Her toe bumped the key piece and she paused. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. She crouched down and felt around before picking up the key piece. The key piece was fidgeted with in her hands, turning several ways. This was found to be the hand's 3D modeling of the shape of the object in her mind. One hand trailed the wall still, her calm anger in her voice. And then, I'm going to gouge your eye senses out. As she made her way to around the room to the other side where she remembered the other key was tossed, in complete darkness. She flipped the piece of the key she had in her hand with the other hand, catching it repeatedly in little baseball tosses while walking. Yep, that's what I'm going to do. Jennifer observed to have very precise hand-key locations tracking in her mind, practically seeing it without needing to see it. She stopped directly under the shelf. How Jennifer knew the exact location of the shelf on the other side of the room is testament to initial brief eye scanning and mapping memory. Human minds are terrifying. See, well, all the case studies. She glanced blindly at the robot by the door and calmly said, Yeah... <laughs> You're scared, aren't you? Note, this was after walking three quarters of the room. Her glaring in the correct direction of the robot indicates that she was tracking its location the entire time. With zero feedback. It was shelf was high, so Jennifer had to jump to reach anything on it. Next, I'm going to... She said as she jumped and swiped blindly at the left shelf, sending a piece of the key flying to the center of the room. She landed and a half, disappointed, and made a motion with her arms, saying, Tear your arms out of the sockets. She got onto her hands and knees and began feeling around for the key part in the direction she heard it land. Then you want to know what else? She found the other key piece quickly and said, I'm gonna hit you, slamming a newly found key piece into the floor with a thumb. Jennifer was silent while she felt around, re-familiarizing her location in the room after searching on the floor. She then alarmingly walked straight to the bin holding the last part of the key. Her hand reached into the mixed container of parts and started swimming around. Sensors focused intently on the hand in the bin. This is the case study root purpose, to learn just how. The hand briefly held an object. Its three main fingers of the medium nerve group fitted this way and that around it, and quickly a 3D model in Jennifer's mind determined, nope, that's not it, based off of the memory of what the key pieces looked like. She dropped the object and stirred around for something different. Only after three grab and examined tries, the back of her thumb grazed the key piece, and that's all that it took. Her hand sensed the metal of the key piece like the predator and the hand flipped it over, ignoring all other parts in the way, and immediately grabbed the key piece and pulled it out. Incredible. Holding the key piece up in front of her blind eyes, she resumed speaking, And you're gonna fall. Jennifer held three key pieces in her hand, rolling her thumb this way and that. At one point, she paused and smiled as it somehow clicked in her mind, and she stood the key pieces together in two fluid movements. Again, note that the test subject was completely unable to see any of this. All actions were done with only her sense of touch, 
and keen knowledge of exactly where and how her hands were positioned while holding the objects, and the memory of what the key looked like and how it was observed to come apart, observed disassembly just once. Horrifyingly skilled tool usage manipulation exhibited. As she walked to the door and robot, she calmly continued her little skit to amuse herself. And I'm gonna look down, she sighed tiredly. She reached the door and felt around for the keyhole. Final test. There was no keyhole. Her hand scanned the entire door and outside frame and learned rather quickly that there was no place for the key. Her chin dropped to her chest, arms hung limp in weary despair. The key in her right hand twirled around like a butterfly knife for a bit. Note, as if she held the tool for years. See, new tool neuroplasticity. Finally, coming to rest in a sturdy, stubby screwdriver grip, and turned slowly to the robot. And I'm gonna laugh, she stated with a slow, calm, resigned weariness. At this point, we realized a huge mistake in the test setup. See, never give a hostile human a medal. Well, lady thing. Scanner and sensors in the room were quickly turned off. The test was complete. We really did not want to document what Jennifer proceeded to do to the robot. Already possesses voluminous case studies, improvised weaponry tools. It was clear by this point that the test subject had the room fully mapped had the robot and all the vulnerable points fully modeled, all in a little nightmare fuel of a brain. Summary. Undetermined why anomalous medium nerve and brain internal mapping and modeling was evolved to such a high degree in human species. No logical reason presents itself. Theory. Just to give us nightmares. Subnote. Inquiry into why 1990s kids' cartoons were quite so terrifying. Alarm! Realization. How are we going to get the key back from Jennifer? And also, all the robot parts. We see she's already made a light in there. This uh, could be bad. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1073. Gibbon and Tigers. Written by Tal McCall. Glock was actually vibrating with excitement, although he would never let his bridge crew know it. Outwardly, he has appeared as calm and dignified, like a commander he now was. Now that he was of age, his family had granted him command of a state-of-the-art warship, and he was free to hunt his way across the stars. Tradition dictated that he would tow his first captured ship back to his homeworld to prove himself. The more dangerous and mighty his first prey was, the more respect his rivals and elders would give him. Glock had an ambition, and he would prove his worth. He captured a human ship, maybe even one of their long-range transports. No one had the might to attack the human in generations, and peace had made his people complacent. Even his own proud family seemed more interested in trade or talk when it came to the humans. As a cub, Glock had even mocked several of his uncles for acting like merchants with the humans, the shame in their eyes. They simply told him that space is far more complex than seemed to a young cub, and that he would understand when he was older. 
Well, he was older, and he understood that they were weak, and they were cowards. None of them would call him a cub when he dragged his prey back to the docks and made them watch him tear it apart, making himself rich and exotic technology. Locke was interrupted from his present thoughts by his communications officer. She was as young as he was and had been personally picked for her family connections and pleasant appearance. Commander, the message from your great-grandfather. She sounded impressed when she said it, shocked even. A retreat. His great-grandfather was an important man with hundreds of distant cubs. No doubt, he was calling to wish him a successful hunt. He motioned with the awestruck girl to let the message be heard. Clark, uh, what a proud day for an old man. It's good to see another of our pack seek his place in the stars. Would you take the time to speak to an old man in private? Of course, Grandfather, but I must be quick. I'm already beginning my hunt, and communications may alert my prey. Laughter from the old man, in front of his bridge crew, no less, on this day of all days. Clock felt like a cub again. He maintained his calm in front of the crew and ordered the room to be cleared, so to speak with the patriarch with as much dignity as he could muster. Once he was sure that he was safely alone, no one could hear him. He answered, Why do you laugh at me? I'm gonna make our pack proud, great-grandfather. Clock swore he may have mewed while he was talking. He was never more thankful he had cleared the bridge. Yes, I know, by preying on the humans, am I right? Again, with the laughter, how did he know? Clock hadn't told anyone of this ambition, and had even disabled his own transponder after leaving port. Come to think of it, how was he even being hailed right now? Thinking back, he realized his pretty young officer had been scared when she had informed him of the call. He already looked like a fool. Yes, the humans. Why not the humans? My uncles are too afraid to do it. I will be the first. This time, roaring laughter, the old man actually started to cough. <laughs> Such fire! <laughs> my blood indeed. Clock, my dear cub, I want to tell you a story. A story I've told many of our family. Will you let an old man rumble? His patriarch didn't give him a chance to answer before he settled down his loft and began. What do you know of the humans, boy? Did you know that they are not predators? Or that they are less than 300,000 years old? Their homeworld still has much of what we consider our ancient biological past intact. It's a fascinating place. I suggest you take some time to visit it, actually. I myself visited when I was about your age. That was a long time ago. The old man was senile, thought Clock. Humans had only just been discovered around that time. There was no way a warlord like his great ancestor had been invited into their ancestral den. He would have heard about it growing up. Sorry, I'll get to the point, young one. I know you're eager to begin your hunt. Well, the humans didn't actually have enough time to totally wipe out their nearest evolutionary rivals or even their ancient predators. 
although they did come close. I want to tell you about gibbons and tigers. Here, I'll send you some pictures. Clark's humiliation was now complete. He was getting a classroom lecture on the bridge of his own warship by a living fossil. Okay, I see them. I suppose the gibbon is related to the humans, and these tigers are their predators. You would think so, but no. Tigers do not hunt gibbons. In fact, they are terrified of them. Ridiculous! Yeah, creature on my screen outweighs the prey by at least eight times, scoffed Clock. Yes, closer to twelve, actually, smiled Isalda. Gibbons are territorial creatures. They have their own little slice of the jungle that they stay in for most of their lives. They share this jungle floor with the tigers. Tigers hunt meat, the gibbons eat fruit, and they mostly stay out of each other's way. Even better for the gibbons. The tigers are also territorial and keep out all other predators away. In exchange, the gibbons will alert the tigers when something unwanted transpasses in their shared jungle. So, it's a symbiosis. Yeah, humans did something similar, and that's how they reached the stars so quickly. Clock was confused, but relieved that he grasped the lesson. He had often wondered how the omnivore had risen to power so quickly. It was comforting to know a predator had assisted him. Well, uh, not exactly. Humans did domesticate another few predators, but that's not the lesson here, cub. Sorry, not a cub anymore, I know. Forgive an old one. Why does a tiger fear the gibbon? The tone was kind, but Clock felt patronized. I have no idea, sir. Please tell me. Clock let some of his contempt drip through against his better judgment. Careful, cub. You are a commander now, and you have a crew that trusts you to be smart. This'll be your last warning. I can't save you from what you've gotten yourself into if you don't take me seriously. Clock suddenly felt a tingle in his nerves and several realizations dawned on him. For starters, he was on a real-time channel and only in the borders of human empire. More alarmingly was that his bridge was empty, and while he had been talking, several terminals had started alerting their missing operators of various anomalies. Why does a tiger fear the given honored elder? There was a genuine urgency in the question this time. Clever cub, listen very carefully and swallow that pride. When a new tiger is born and he's finished winning of its mother, it starts to explore. The gibbon watches this all happen from the trees of its jungle. Soon the young tiger will stray too far from its mother and the gibbon will come down to meet it. The tiger is too stupid to know the danger it is in. Its mother is the largest predator in the jungle and it knows no fear. It will attack the gibbon, the gibbon will grab it by the table and violently swing it around. Eventually, the cries of the cub will alert the mother who will come running back. But now, the gibbon is back at the trees and dangling the cub in front of its mother. If the mother is smart and remembers the same lesson it learned during its old trial, it will lay down and wait for the gibbon to return its offspring. If she does this, the gibbon will drop the cub and watch the mother discipline it for its foolishness. All will be well, and the cub will inherit its own slice of the jungle. 
If not, the gibbon will bash the cub on a tree and a new line of tigers will eventually move in. The cold implication washed over him with sudden clarity. Elder, when will they come? More laughter. Only this time Clark had no pride left to answer the humiliation he felt. Boy, who do you think called me? They've been watching you since you left port. Power down your ship and prepare to be towed back to our border. The humans will present you and your ship to your uncles and I. Don't feel bad. They do this to all of us. The old man was cackling so hard. The camera was shaking when the call ended. Clock walked himself to his targeting system and saw that there was a warship almost four times his own ship's mass hovering only a few hundred meters from his bridge. They were so close that, with his optical cameras, he could see the bridge crew standing in front of the view screen. They even looked like the picture his great-grandfather had sent him. His own tail started to ache. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1074. Story number one. Synthetic Destiny. Written by Rosie013. Lalt glanced down on the human corpse with content. Another thread cut, one more strand closer to this tapestry of victory over the upright vermin that smoked this world. He checked the feed from the splinter rifle, 40% ammunition remaining to be dispensed, 70% battery pack charge to do it that with. Enough for now. The crude projectile weapons they pelted him with wasn't even enough to scratch the paint in his battle harness so Lalt didn't even bother to check its condition. Just as he made to move out, a glint of a reflection beneath him caught his attention. The body had something shiny on it, totally out of place on the battlefield. It was glass, or more specifically, two bits of glass over its eyes. Simple vision enhancers, primitive and unimpressive, but a sign that the infestation was more than just producing weapons but enhancements too. Irrelevant, their threats would be cut regardless. He strode forward, his weight driving the head of the already forgotten corpse into the mud. The dead vermin he shared a foxhole with stared at him balefully. Blout stared back, waiting for a gap in the bombardment. The human slug throwers might be ineffectual on this individual level, but the big guns might cause some damage to his harness. Unacceptable. Better to wait for them to cease this bombardment before continuing his cleansing. Even now, he could feel the occasional nearby thread snap in his mind as one of their own perished to the indirect fire. Brave of them to think that this would do anything other than slow him and his many brothers down. There was no stopping Yilalt. The tapestry had been started and would be woven until complete. The rest, however, did give him time to inspect the changes to his foe. It was a ratty-looking thing, even in death. Its gear was subtly different, too. Armor more form-fitting, projectile weapon more compact. But most interesting was its left arm, a crude prosthetic, not even motorized, but enough to grip its gun. Before he could consider the deeper implications of this, the bombardment stopped and Lalt rose to continue with his purpose. 
Lord ignored the droning of the intelligence representative and stared at the human cadaver on the table between them. His harness was freshly repaired and repainted. His splinter rifle charged at full capacity, ready to head back to the front when he had been directed to this meeting by some of the hive's workers. The dead vermin looked like any other, save for an artificial ocular implant built right into the creature's head. It was nonetheless crude, rushed work. The intelligence drone was wrong. It didn't matter if it was simple vision enhancement or targeting equipment. The vermin's thread would be cut like any others of its kind that dared to exist. They might have learned to resist, but it would be utterly futile. The fact that it was already dead was proof enough. The upright vermin died as the last of the rifle's ammunition shredded its chest, but not with the usual gargling scream that Lulth had come to expect. Instead, there was a loud hiss as escaping gases emerged from the ruptured metal and plastic organs in its torso cavity. Lulth might have not been sure if it was even dead if it wasn't for the snapping of its thread in the back of his mind. The cleansing had been slow of late, the tapestry of victory, slowing to a worker drone's crawling pace. The vermin's new laser guns were contributing heavily to that. They could actually kill his kind with a lucky shot, as a few of his less fortunate brothers could attest. He looked back at the cooling remains of his defeated foe. He hadn't seen internal modifications amongst his foe before. Not which just considering what that meant for the extermination when the remains exploded, engulfing him in a small but intense fireball. He reported to the intelligence briefing just before it began. The need for the rest of the temporary hive bunk that had been offered to him felt way more pressing. Where once he would have just jostled for position, now there was space for himself and all of his brothers, all that remained now. On the table before the drone was a dead human, or part of one, anyway. The question was, which part? Whatever artificial limb had originally replaced was irrelevant, however, as the inbuilt laser weapon was considerably great concern. Lot had heard rumors of this. The humans were now incorporating the lasers of war directly into themselves, rather than carry them as equipment. It was astonishing to see it himself. The sense of nervousness of his brothers indicated that they shared his feelings. This was a direct affront to the tapestry of life, the merging of individuals and tools. It was just wrong. They deserved their deaths, and for this wrong that they had done. Something was wrong. The human soldier in front of him was dead, but not dead. Lalt had emptied his splinter rifle into it ineffectually before resorting to tearing it apart with his mandibles. It lay on the ground in front of it, twisted apart and unmoving as only the dead could be. It wasn't going to explode. They had given up on that trick some time ago. His forelimbs subconsciously brushed against his carapace, where he was still discolored from burn scars. He quickly scanned the data frequencies. No distress signal of the injured human was present, at least on this part of the battlefield. The tapestry was... what? There had been no snap of the thread being cut, nothing to signal a life form had moved on. No death. 
The body was dead, but there had been no death. Quickly, Louts tore apart the remains, looking for the meat of the creature under all the augmentations. Nothing. Whatever he had just killed, it wasn't human vermin like he had first faced when Evive came to this world. He wasn't sure what it was. And for the first time in his life, he felt fear. Josh AI-027 binary code did not pause his advance to take note of the latest insect soldier to fall to his repeated laser cannons. He did not care that it was one of the oldest beings the hive had on the planet, one of the few remaining who came from off-world at the beginning of the invasion, all those years ago. He did not care about its outdated weapons and armor harness, he did not care about its many battle scars and senior carapace markings. He did not care that the hive heard its string snap as the victory tapestry continued to unravel. He calmly and uncaringly added another kill to his tally and ground Lout's body into the mud beneath his tracks. End of story. Story number two. Harry and the Food Replicator Safety Protocols, written by Warp Mind. Human Harry, I received reports that you've tampered with the Food Replicator and endangered your crew members. Harry sighed, looking up at the Quthulk, whose three eyes all stared at him sternly. Sorry, Captain. I admit fault in forgetting to re-enable the safety protocols after getting breakfast. Uh, it was unintentional, and I'm relieved that no one was harmed as a result. Kuthulk looked down at the report, the middle eyebrow coding in uh, concern, frustration. Harry had some trouble reading the captain's facial mimicry, even if the Kulithak were amongst the most human-like species on board. The three eyes, front-facing and independent of one another, weirded him out. Human Harry, I am seriously concerned disabling the safety protocols to begin with is a severe breach of... Well, um, all regulations... Really, um, will someone good poison themselves or make narcotics? I've checked the human nutritional requirements. The standard restrictions don't block any of your sustenances that your species needs whatsoever. So I can't find any justification for your actions to, uh, what's the earthen saying, um, brush this under the carpet, something of the sort? Harry smiled wryly. Sweep it under the rug, sir, uh, I know. I know, um, but the thing is, uh, food made with the security protocols engaged just, um, doesn't taste anything, uh, like anything at all. Plus, uh, there are other things I liked that the protocols won't allow at all. And in my defense, sir, I did lock my special menu options to my own biometric protocol, so, um, it's not as though someone else could accidentally order it. Kulthk shook his head slowly, imitating the human gesture. No, I can't simply accept that explanation, but I will give you the opportunity to show me. Show me that you can indeed not replicate your sustenance with the protocols active, and I will see what I can do about adjusting them. Harry sighed softly as the disabled protocols and made his drink, took the cup out of the replicator, and enabled the security protocols again before ordering the same thing. Then he took a step back. Kulthuk looked quizzically, also, Harry thought, at the back battle, and quickly followed suit. Then there was a loud, sharp explosion from the food replicator, and a bit of smoke came out, 
accompanied by a printer error message for the engineer who would have to diagnose and repair the machine. The captain carefully read the printout, all three eyebrows rising, and his gills turning a sickly shade of cyan. But this can't be right. Caffeine, capsaicin, cuberin, lactose, theobromine, all in concentrations that would cause either immediate or gradual organ failures. These dosages can't be... What in the name of the 16-star cluster is the thing you're drinking, human Harry? Harry took a slow, delighted sip of his cup, savoring the rich flavors. It's um, called a Mexican spiced mocha, and I don't rightly get through the day without a cup or three. Kulthuk stood there as Harry sipped his coffee, looking at the printout to the cup, mentally calculating the sheer amount of toxins the human before him was processing on a daily basis, and fainted. He came to in the medbay, slowly opening one eye at a time, seeing Harry wobbling out of the door with some apparent intestinal discomfort, and turned his head to stare at the ceiling. So the human was apparently trying to show off, after all, and now he paid the price for that toxic cocktail of his. He turned his head slightly as Dr. Merm's shadow fell on him. Ah, doctor, how long... The merm shrugged with his lower arms, the common gesture of relief of the Hawassi. Long enough that I was getting concerned, Captain. A little over three standard hours. You hit your head a bit hard when you fell, though the circumstances seem a bit, um, unusual. Human Harry said that you just, uh, fainted. Kulthuk frowned. I, uh, the, the list of poisons Human Harry bragged about consuming on a regular basis... I see now that he was putting on a brave face to avoid punishment for endangering the rest of the crew. I gather he came by to get some treatment for that Mexican spiced mocha, as he called it. Moon shook his head. Normally, I would not answer that, but given the circumstances, no, he did not. He just came by for an antacid pill, complaining that since he was locked out of the security protocols, he couldn't get his food seasoned the way he likes. Kothk arched his two eyebrows. And that gave him acid problems. Mern shook his head again, scratching the top of his head. No, the, the half a canister of riot control spray he poured on his steak and tumors did. He said something about it being deceptively sweet. He might be a little insane, e even for a human. Kulthuk fainted again. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1075 Story number one. The Peacemaker, written by the Breadmaster. The tensions were already very high in the galactic community by the time the Terrans, or humans as they would prefer, joined in on the stars. Anyone could see that war was imminent between the two main factions, the Supreme Entente and the Altair Concord. The Supreme Attente were a group of royalists who would have preferred monarchs and emperors, with strict societies and cultures. The Alto Concord, named after their founders, were more democratic, with elections and more freedoms in trade, tradition, and in life general. Other smaller groups existed, but mainly tried to avoid conflict, and usually ended up entering one of the two superpower groups due to the sheer power difference. The day the Terrans would join the galaxy was feared, as they were rather unusual. They had many, many factions amongst them, and had one of the highest populations recorded for a species. 
Their history showed that they could function under both forms of ruling, but have recently favored a more democratic bureaucracy. Naturally, the Concorde wanted to bring them and strengthen their ranks, while the Intente wanted to keep them away, at least until they started favoring a more sovereign style of ruling. Some on both sides wanted them to be left alone until they could figure themselves out. Humanity, on the other hand, really didn't care what the others wanted to do, and rapidly developed FTL engines once a few accidents revealed that alien life existed to the Terrans. Soon, the Terrans would discover the galactic community, and no one could do anything to stop it. The highly anticipated day of contact was near, and both sides rapidly started preparing for it. They did end up agreeing to not forcing them to pick a side for 25 galactic standard large cycles, or about 30 years. When they arrived, they immediately tried to learn about everything that they had missed. In the first month, they had a linguistic experts learn their languages, engineers learning about new advanced technologies, astronomers charting the universe, and merchants learning all of the trade routes. Within the first year, they had already integrated the galactic common in their way of life, and were teaching it in schools. In the fifth year, they had managed to make a non-verbal one with a mixture of hand signals, movements, blinking, etc. It had something for everyone, ensuring everyone could effectively communicate. Terrans also devised a way to make Dyson spheres and Dyson swarms, revolutionizing energy as a whole. They also massively developed the weapons field, turning kinetic weapons, something most thought to be useless and unredeemable, into a group rivaling the most advanced plasma and sonic weaponry. By the time the off-limits agreement ended, they had revolutionized the galactic community in many ways not thought possible. Of course, neither the Concorde or the Intente were actually idle in this time period. They both tried subtly and openly to convince the Terrans to join their group. The Concorde painted the Intente as dictators and tyrants, something the Terrans tended to hate. The Intente depicted the Concorde as a messy bunch who couldn't ever get anything done due to bureaucracy and corruption. Resources, technology, and territory was given to try and ensure loyalty. Both sides placed spies around, both to see what the Terrans were doing to help them and the enemy to sabotage their aid. Both sides had spent much of their resources due to how important this ally could be in the coming war. On the faithful day, the president of the highest-ranking ambassadors of the Concord and a few of the royal monarchs themselves traveled to the Terrans' homeworld to convince them to join their alliance. It was clear whoever they joined would be the victors in the coming conflict. However, the Terrans surprised both of them and ended up allying with a group of other mammals simply known as the Bond of Development. Sodi focused on progress and trade, while angering both of them as they had spent so much buttering them up. The Concorde actually preferred this, as the Bond was more democratically oriented. The Entente took this as a grave insult and took to eradicating them as soon as possible, mobilizing a great fleet. They expected to carry this fleet all the way to the conquering of Concord, so they poured everything they had into it. However, they weren't the only one with spies. The Terrans found out and started secretly making a military to fight them. 
They also informed the Concord and officially agreed to be allies in the coming conflict. As the war began, both sides started taking large amounts of casualties. The Intente weren't going for just beating them into submission, but instead were trying to eradicate them. They used weapons and tactics that violated galactic treaties, but it didn't matter to them. After all, all is fair in love and war, right? Humanity was understandably pissed, and the Intente expected a vengeance in the Terrans. But surprisingly, they continued on as normal, taking prisoners and treating the wounded, not causing unnecessary pain. However, Intente spines had found out about the top-secret project only known as the Peacemaker. However, they couldn't find any other details. The Intente reasoned that this had two possibilities. A charity organization that would focus on stabilizing less while all planets gather support, or a psychological weapon to make enemies lose their will to fight. To counter this, they decided to spread out troops into territories that needed the aid the most, and ensured their loyalty. They also trained their soldiers to resist psychological manipulation, and to keep fighting under it. However, the Agshaw project surprised everyone. The Intente prepared for the assault on their vital resource worlds, and thought that they were ready when the Terran fleet approached. What they saw astounded them. It was the biggest ship in recorded history, spanning for many miles, capable of holding a small species' entire population. That alone was impressive, but what was truly extraordinary was a giant railgun mounted to the top, easily the biggest weapon made in history. It was surrounded by several ships contributing to a massive shield, protecting it from kinetic, plasma, and nuclear weaponry. First, it shot a nuclear bomb for a round and instantly destroyed the vanguard of the Intente's forces. It fired again and again, and soon the entire fleet was destroyed. Then, it shot a projectile of pure dense metal at the speed of light at the planet, ending all life there immediately and cracking it to its core. It did this again and again, wiping out most of the Intente military presence. Then, it turned its sights on the core world. As soon as it arrived, we braced for the end. But it never came. They sent terms of surrender, which surprisingly included aid to restabilize, returning of prisoners, and even allowing the Intente to continue its monarchy form of government, as long as the citizens' quality of life was improved. We accepted hastily, as to avoid the imminent annihilation. Soon after, the Intende disbanded, forming smaller groups with previous members, making the Concord the only superpower left. Humanity opted to join the bond again, turn the Peacekeeper into colonizing ship, and generally try to forget the massacre committed. Many large cycles later, we finally found out why they called the Machine of War the Peacekeeper. After all, aren't they the complete opposite? We asked an admiral why the odd name, and he told us, It seems ironic at first, doesn't it? The way I see it is if there aren't anyone to fight, then there can't be a war. End of story. Story number two. They begin with the impossible. Written by Lords of Jupe. Asymmetrical warfare is a difficult, nuanced thing and species who master it quickly become adept at seizing opportunities. 
are needed, creating them. Battles cease being protracted, expensive affairs and turn into lopsided masses of casualty reports for one side and a line item bidding matter for the other. For a little expense, a small number of combatants die for their cause. In exchange, morale is gained, or territories reclaimed, or assets change hands. The inverse, often deeply multiplied, is applied to the loser of the arrangement. Losing a vast amount of fighters, materials, and territory having a deeply profound effect on the standing military's morale. To that end, I will introduce myself. My name is Captain Jack C. Marshall, Terran Navy, and I'm about to run the stolen agricultural station through your vessel, which, I am freely admitting, has a beautiful name, the Siren of the Sun. It's poetic. Our understanding of your race and perspective cultures did not reflect that you can convey such strength and courage with a simple ship name. Not, of course, that your ship is a simple one, another mark in your favor. After all, you're driving a ship approximately one-third the size of our homeworld single moon, and frankly, that's impressive stuff. Filled with your factories, shipyards, and munitions development plants, it's basically a mobile war creation zone. It's damned impressive, and you should be proud as you can be, because it is an outstanding achievement. That you can do all of this with just a skeleton crew of 4,000 is nothing shy astounding. Hats off to you, sincerely. Also, in about an hour, give or take, I'll be driving it myself, so uh, try not to muck up the command deck. You may want to have your flag officers visit whatever qualifies as a restroom facility very soon. The next bit of news, it may come as a bit of a shock. No, seriously, pause this recording so that you cannot be attended to, because we don't have enough cleaning agents on hand. I'd appreciate the thoroughness. We're big on thoroughness over here, as you likely are learning. Probably, yes, because I did say I'm piloting an agricultural station, not a ship. I'll walk you through how this works in a moment, but suffice to say, yes, that's exactly what is happening and what I'm telling you to do. Go and do it, both with your time and mine. I'm presuming that you've released the pause function on this recording and obeyed that simple request. If so, I appreciate it. If not, familiarize yourself with the nearest janitorial station, because I will be taking it personally. Also, as an aside, we're transmitting our dietary codes to your ship, so that your culinary printers can get acquainted with our meal plans. We tend to eat heavy when on a roll through a new ship. Around six months ago, on your calendar at least, one of your vessels, the gloriously named Song of Gravity, intentionally fired upon a rescue and relief ship of ours, the Starpug. Starpug was, in part, a training ship, which meant we lost teachers and students and a few dozen patients, and we took that personally. Now, when we seized control of the Song of Gravity, all we intended to do was strip it for parts, execute the command crew, and strand the survivors on a nearby life-supporting planet. Basically, pretty civilized treatment, considering what had just happened. Instead, what we got was further antagonizing from your local colony of LV-90A, which you awfully declared as the Green Aura, which is kind of cool as names go. 
just a little on the nose when we found out it supplies a lot of your fleet with the food and beverages. Needless to say, we defeated the Harriers dispatched from the Green Aura, chased the survivors home, and decided, you know what, we could use a good meal, and maybe a drink or two. Which is why we attached all of the booster pods, acceleration units, and the six surviving jump and hurl drives to the hull of this magnificent vessel, Bounty of the Green. That vessel, the one I am currently piloting, by the way, is getting really close to you now. Now, we're not done explaining what it is about to happen. As a reply to the loss of Green Aura, you sent those nasty threats to our homeworld and included a virus in the transmission which crippled our core computerized infrastructure and took it offline for what we estimate is going to be a decade. You knew that it would starve our people to death. We'd struggle, fight amongst ourselves and dwindling resources, and lose hope. Well, Chuckles, allow me to retort. We have a dozen ships which can empty our own planet in under a week, which, uh, by the way, you used to own, and they used to be troop carriers. Those troops, as a side note, are now a fascinating cluster of floating in our contrail, being dragged behind this vessel as I continue my approach at speed. We have successfully invaded your green aura, claimed it for ourselves, and settled in for the long haul. You wanted a fight, so congratulations. You picked one with an undisputed master of asymmetrical warfare. We are not only about to kick your ass, but we're going to do it on time, under budget, and with a smile. Because this ship is not going to stop and trade shots with you when we arrive. We plan to continue our FTL flight plan directly through you. Fire off every life pod your race left for the station and use their jump hole drives inside of the system. The calculations for doing this without slaughtering ourselves in the attempt are just mind-bogglingly complex. Seriously, it's a lot. See, we're also math geniuses uh, if we're motivated. And we're motivated. Picture, if you will, a 6,596 life pods, all with short-range capabilities of moving from point A to point B without generating momentum, and indeed capable of cancelling it during the jump as they fuse into your hull wherever they can possibly fit. Then the doors will open, and out each life pod will pour about a dozen or so Terran marines, and you can reasonably expect that they will be violently ill, followed by just being violent. We're going to lose some marines, which is okay, as they're all volunteer service branch. They are going to be problematic, and soon. What you need to worry about on a personal level is we scary feckers in the Terran Navy. I was born to beat you. See you soon, Chuckles. USN Smirking Revenge, out. Ben of Story Tales from Outer Space 1076 Human Burdens, written by Drunken Turtles The more I live alongside humans, the more I wish not to. They are an unknown quantity, an anomaly on the galactic stage, and now they've infested every corner of the galaxy. They are born to a death world whose religions revolve around death, celebrates the dead, and nearly die when they rest. Their nature is destructive, 
selfish, arrogant, and even sadistic. They live in a constant conflict with each other and transform the act of war into an art form. Sure, other species have better technologies and weapons, but humans don't need that when they have sheer force. Humans have no need for glass, luxury, and finesse. Their technology is modular and utilitarian, and their weapons go beyond effective into the realm of brutality for the sake of it. Weapons are sticky flame that melt soft bodies and slowly cook the unfortunate species with an exoskeleton. Explosive and kinetic weapons made to tear limbs and leave their victims to bleed out, especially shotguns. Dirty bombs made to maximize biological damage and a whole plethora of ways to melt you from the inside, too. They win battles through fear. If a human ever says, let's introduce these Xenos to GAU-30, hope you're not on the receiving end. Maybe their kinetic shooters lack the range of lasers, but they have an armor and engine power to close the distance and make full use of the MAC and the GAU systems. But nothing in my entire career as a royal soldier fighting against and alongside humans could have prepared me to witness what atrocities they are truly capable of. I was sent as a first responder to a Union orbital station over reports of a terrorist attack in the central trading hub. My team had no concept of the human notion of a terrorist, so we approached this as some sort of pirate attack. We were to join a human squad to venture into the epicenter of the attack and analyze damage while searching for survivors. Moving rubble, I warned the search party as a robotic hoist carefully moved a fallen steel beam. We held our breaths, the metal screeching and groaned as the rest of the rubble tenuously balanced on the beam. I halted the hoist when a path large enough to crouch through was made. I'm going in first. A raspy voice of a human commander came from behind me. His uniform was similar to a medic, but with armor. A firearm strapped to a chestplate and a large medical bag on his back. Humans first in the terai. The human barked at me while turning his helmet light on. His manner of speaking irritated me, but as this was a human-owned station, he was in command. We allowed his men to crawl through as we followed closely behind. In hindsight... Having the larger, stronger humans go first was a relief. Upon entering the cavernous hub, we deployed the floodlights to get a better look at the destruction. The carnage was... horrific. Countless bodies lay on the ground. Some torn to pieces, others still holding loved ones. Their flesh had melted off the bone. We were supposed to be war-hardened veterans. The best the throne had... Are we all rose in a terror. I could feel my stomach chew, and as the putrid smell hit my nostrils. Fecking Markov, the medic had snarled through gritted teeth. I meekly mumbled as I struggled to find the words. Do we search for survivors? Let's hope no one did. A sturdy voice of a human wavered. Gary, take the team to cargo entrance and analyze structural integrity and brace it. I'll stay with the Terai party and see if anyone can be saved. All the bites seemed to be sucked out of the commander. His tone now cold. His men gave a quick nod and went off. The human looked my way and came towards me. We met face to face. I could feel the tingling sensation climb up my back as my eyes met his hollow gaze. It was as if he stared off into the distance, 
and into the depths of my being at the same time. The human smiled. Thank you for helping. It truly means a lot. Now, um, we have a job to do. That moment felt much longer than it should have been. I could feel all my men intently watching. None of us replied. We copied what the other humans did with their heads and spread out to find any survivors. Surprisingly, it didn't take long for one of my men to find a living human. I found one still breathing, but it looks bad. By second in command, Shen gagged. The medic and I made our way to the destroyed shop stand, careful on the unstable ground. Looking over to the medic, his face seemed dismayed and somber instead of hopeful. Slumped behind the stand was what could barely be described as a male human. Most clothes had burnt off. Only one eye remained and the body was covered in severe burns. A labored gargling with each breath was the only sign of life. I couldn't understand what kind of bomb could do such damage outside an inn. I crouched down next to the body and laid my emergency bag down. By the royalty, what could even do this? I questioned out of my breath while frantically looking through my emergency bag for anything that could help. White phosphorus, um, a terrible weapon we banned. The human answered while I continued searching through my bag. A firm hand on my shoulder pulled my attention up at the human standing next to me. Both Shen and I gave him a confused knock. He was a medic, but he just stood there. Don't just stand there. We, we have to save him. I snapped out in a callous human. Perform your duties as a medic. I'm sorry, son. There is nothing to do. The human struggled to look me in the face as he pulled his arm away. He looked away and murmured, I'm sorry, before unholstering his firearm and firing one shot past my head. I looked back in shock with ringing ears. He had put one bullet through the heart of the survivor. I stammered back to my feet, everyone now looking at us. All my men were appalled, but the humans didn't bother to give more than a glance. Staring back at the medic, he still had the weapon in hand with a smoking muzzle while looking down at the man he just killed. You killed him, you, you heartless, wretched apes, I outraged. I chastised and cursed the human. My balls clenched as my claws began to dig into my skin. I should... He turned his gaze onto me with a dejected look that managed to shut me up. I um, showed him mercy. Then he holstered his weapon and walked away. If he was in the royal station, I would have had him publicly executed for such a monstrous act. But all I could do was stand there in loathsome silence. It was a human station. He was my superior, and any reports wouldn't be investigated in a dire situation. I just hoped no one lived and made sure the room didn't collapse. Time felt slow when every step could be a lost, when every moment wasted could be a life lost. It had been nearly four hours after we first entered, and it seemed our job was done. The room was safe for the station crew to sort through this mess. To my relief, no one else was fined alive. As morbid as it sounds, to my dismay, that relief only lasted a few peaceful minutes. A powerful voice echoed throughout the destroyed hub, coming from the previously known food court sections. My senses are picking up a heartbeat. The commanding medic seemed to reinvigorate as he lifted debris bigger than my whole body. Before my team could even react, all of his men mobilized around the pile of rubble to help. We approached and watched to avoid getting in their way. 
They uncovered a human child under the rubble with a crushed arm and a missing left leg, but barely breathing. It was awe-inspiring to watch the team of four effortlessly coordinate without speaking. In seconds, they sprayed stabilizing foam on the missing leg, inserted an inflatable oxygen tube into the mouth, and wired a vital monitor. On the holographic projection, the blood oxygen levels, blood pressure, and pulse were displayed. The vitals were volatile. Dangerously low, warning sounds chimed as the numbers turned red. One of the humans shot us an angry stare while hanging a bag of artificial blood. Call for help! Go do something! Two of my team ran for help. I stayed behind as a line of communication. I was not a trained medic unit, but low vitals were universally bad. The feeling of helplessness tore at me. I wasn't brave enough to help and risk a mistake. I've killed enemies, but I couldn't bear having a death of a child. Amat, she's going into shock. Give her entropin, ordered the leader while rhythmically pushing on the child's chest. The vitals began to stabilize as one human administered an injection. Come on, kid, stay strong. No, 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 he cried out, frantically taking off the pack of the vitals flatlined. Two battles attached to the back of wires were pulled out and emitted a high-pitched whine. Clear! The body twitched, and the heart beat once more before the horrible ringing of the flatline sounded again. Clear! Come on! Clear! Clear! He attempted to kickstart the heart to no avail, before throwing the paddles to the side and returning to the pumping of the chest. The other humans had stopped attempting to stabilize the child as the leader continued, the desperation growing in his pleas. With strained breathing, the human slowed his attempts before giving up. Then, something I would never have expected from a man who had executed an innocent person happened. With his head slumped in his hands, he leaned beside the child's body and wept, the silent cries from the humans seemingly drowned out by the ringing of the vital monitor and the shouts of the oncoming rescue team. That moment still haunts my memory. After all the horrible things I said and thought of humans, here I am, now a dedicated member of that medic's crew. Our squads joined forces in search of the ones responsible for the attack. We were at the station for countless sleepless days, and not once did he falter. He was always the first one in, and the last one out from any dangerous situation. While we rested, he spent the night in the infirmary. While we ate, he spared his rations for the injured. Never thought that I would say this, but I wholeheartedly trust him and his human companions with my life. We would risk life and limb to save and help the helpless, completely irrationally at times, the price of which was demonstrated in the scars and burns across his body. I understand the burden he and his men carry, the unbearable weight of their conscience. They constantly fight against their own destructive nature. They spit in the face of reality at their own cost. Sometimes they have to make hard decisions. Some I could never bring myself to do. Humans, in that sense, are stronger than any other species that I've had the fortunate inconvenience of meeting. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1077 What do unstoppable death worlders fear? Written by Eclipse Shadow 
Data entry, species Omega-49. Hewitt, uh, what can slow them down, let alone stop them? They seem to have infinite potential, capability of understanding the most complex of subjects. Yet, the average human only seems to be moderately capable at best. How is the base of Mega-class Death World has managed to survive, let alone thrive on terror? For any new individuals reading this series of entries who haven't taken any planetology classes, Death Worlders and their primary surviving inhabited are classified as follows. Alpha-class or Class 1 Death Worlds. Mostly habitable, but have one primary threat to life on the planet. Be that threat, disease, or seasoned predatory species, or the common natural disaster. Beta-class, or class two death worlds, like alpha-class planets, but having two threats to sentient life. An example being acid rain and a predatory species immune to it. Such a planet ARSD3 in the Liumph sector. Delta-class, or class three death worlds, there are many known Delta-class death worlds, but the most infamous has toxic cloud disaster every rotation. Predators immune to the toxins within the cloud and frequent planet-wide quakes. No mega-class or class 4 death worlds. These are planets with four or more threats to life. And as of writing this, there are only one that has created sentient life capable of space-faring technology. The planet would be Terra, or as the inhabitants, humans, call it, Earth. This Omega-class death world holds numerous predators on every continent. Devastating tectonic quakes, droughts, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes. There's a season for hurricanes. Couple that with countless plagues and diseases, and the fact that anything can live, let alone thrive down there, put enough fear into the Galactic Council to spur multiple debates, on whether or not just to destroy the planet and hope that it would kill the species. Most beta and above class death worlds tended to be openly hostile from the start, but not the humans. Strangely, they came in peace. It was unnerving just how open to peace they were. What were these creatures up to? It was during these initial interactions when this team was formed as a precaution if they really did come in peace. Formerly, we are just ambassadors and scientists gathering information on human physiology and preferences so that the rest of the Galactic Council members know what they can and cannot ingest, what drinks are harmful, what diseases to watch out for. In reality, our goal was to find their weakness, what could kill them, what could stop them, what they fear. What we learned about them shook us to our very core, these humans have a genre of video called horror. We believe that this is what they fear the most. Why they watched it was beyond our comprehension, perhaps as a test of courage. Many of these horror movies terrifies our crew. The humans seem to fear nigh impossible to exist creatures. Monster killers capable of tearing them from limb from limb. Dangerous killers, capable of being everywhere at once. Unfortunately for us, one of the members of the team happened to be Italian spy. The Italians began their campaign using psionics and biotechnology to manifest these creatures, make those nightmarish beings a reality to clear a human colony. It worked in the beginning. 
Humans ran terrified from them, but when backed into a corner, that is when we learned about one of the most interesting attributes. Humans get themselves high biologically. They have a gland that releases a rather potent combat drug into their body. With that adrenaline high, the human is capable of feats that should be impossible for them. Lifting tanks to save the young, surviving what should be fatal injuries, and, yes, killing monsters that should not even exist. The humans, after realizing these creatures could bleed, realized that they could just as easily die, and began exterminating the monstrosities with brutal efficiency. On that note, we also learned just how easy it is for a human to turn anything into a weapon for brutalizing their enemy. With Italian treachery came the sanctions and punishment, but what was most frightening was what the humans did with some of the captured Italian diets. The humans, for some bizarre reason, began giving them the life of luxury. It seemed odd. Why reward someone for the act of aggression? Were they being brainwashed? No, it would not be for several planetary cycles before we would learn just what the humans were up to. The humans somehow managed to make themselves psionic. Through some advanced biotechnology, they altered some of their own and granted them psionic power. After studying the psions and how their powers worked, humans reverse-engineered biology to create augmentations that would let themselves use psionics. While not as powerful as other scions, the humans showed their capabilities when they did what many saw as impossible. They had manipulated psionics to the point where they could use what they referred to as magic. Using highly focused telekinesis, they superheated the air through friction. Then threw a newly formed fireball with such accuracy and force that it seemed impossible to dodge. The humans, in a few years of having psionics, evolved psionics, opened new doors that many races thought impossible, even using telekinesis to manifest a psychological presence alongside oneself to aid in battle. Back to our study, we had no battle luck in understanding their fears or weaknesses. Any bodily weakness we found they had accounted to. Disease, their immune system could fight it. If not, they used various antibiotics and other medicines to fight off symptoms and outlast the disease, then take parts of the dead disease cells and inject it into their own. The humans were intentionally infecting their own with disease and illness to give them immunity to them in the future. Though, in hindsight, that shouldn't be surprising from the species that regularly drinks poison for recreational purposes and only gets minor headaches from their, uh, hangover. As for any other weakness of the body, they can just as easily replace any destroyed part with a stronger mechanical part, which, uh, if this part is an extremity or outer body part, will no doubt have a weapon all three attached. The Garum found that out the hard way. The upstart warmongers thought that the humans were weak and their territory had plenty of valuables. They invaded without warning. The four-armed brutes overwhelmed the humans using what many of them would consider tank cannons as rifles. While the initial attacks were devastating, killing several hundred humans and wounding countless thousands more. Subsequent attacks had broader results. The true war, however, didn't begin until the original wounded returned. These humans seemed 
different. Cold, emotionless, perhaps. Not there, but only one emotion they showed. Pure, absolute rage. They could not die. Whatever augmentations they had replaced with their lost parts would not let them die. Even if you blew off the other arm, it would grow back near instantly. In true human tradition, these augmentations were outer body parts, i.e. arms, were equipped with mounted guns. And those guns were themselves equipped with a bayonet. Sometimes, of all the bigger guns, a chainsaw was used. This war lasted less than three cycles. The humans had shown their ingenuity, creativity, and their unstoppable resolve. These humans had no limits. When they hit said limits, they'd push their bodies to go beyond them. That adrenaline that naturally produced seemed to remove their limits, even allowing some of their cybernetically augmentations to bypass the limits of the more biomechanical parts. No, I don't mean they could shoot faster or anything like that. What I mean is if the biomechanical arm could lift 150 tons, under adrenaline, they could push those limits and do 300 tons. While pushing, their bodies that far does damage that the body repairs itself and upgrades itself. Through breaking their limits, they gain newer, higher limits. It still brought the question of why. Why is it that they can continuously improve? They're like their own ships, constantly being improved upon, made better and stronger but able to improve and strengthen the body within its own lifespan. That, uh, that should be impossible for any species. There was also the question about why humans seemed to love attaching blades to their projectile weapons, and why they would charge headfirst into an enemy with said weapon instead of reloading. For this and many more questions that needed answering, we have agreed to enlist the aid of a few human scientists. To answer a few questions about the humans, we got answers that were forthcoming, yet odd. Why would the humans just tell us these things? Their love for attaching bayonets and charging into things. Well, if you run out of ammo or someone gets too close, you're gonna need a plan B. So we used knives at the end of our guns to use as impromptu spears or strike the foe in the jaw with the butt of our rifle. How do they regenerate and grow stronger? Our bodies make stem cells which will patch up the damage. Platelets will clot up and stop the bleeding, if any. Though we've found ways to modify our stem cell production. This allows us to basically manufacture them for whatever we need, even growing back the numbers. Of course, we also tinkered with making organic weaponry, hence the newer replacements coming in with built-in weapons. Why? Why do you tell us these things? I asked. Simple. You asked. Dr. Roberts responded, Is there anything that humans even fear? You people seem nigh unstoppable. Godlike in your ability to just do anything. I would soon regret asking that question. For what I learned was of cosmic horror. What the humans fear deep down is something so unimaginably large that it would in all likelihood be unable to exist. A being of such overwhelming power that his very presence would drive those who see it mad. Dr. Roberts spoke of eldritch horrors and Lovecraftian monstrosities that would break anyone's sanity. The human spirit that which was so powerful, the only option to face it was to cope that it didn't care enough to kill you. 
When asked about what the Tellians created, Dr. Robbers merely chuckled. One fatal flaw in what the Tellians made, those creatures could bleed. They were mortal. And, well, as we say, if it bleeds, we can kill it. Gotta admit, it was funny seeing horror movie monsters being destroyed by the mining troll. Good thing they didn't try to create xenomorphs. Then we may have had a problem. Sure, we could have just glassed the planet. Not even gonna bother with those things. But those little bastards tended to somehow always survive and find a way with the planet. I hesitated to ask about xenomorphs, sir. But when I did, I was both horrified that they could even imagine such a disturbing creature. But I was also relieved knowing that we hadn't even seen those movies. If the Italians made that, no. I don't even want to think about the aftermath of such a disaster. I don't even question why they'd imagine such creatures. Given just how unstoppable and limitless humans are, it seemed only natural that monsters of unimaginable power and destructive capabilities would be the only things humans would even see as a threat. End of report. Tales from Outer Space 1078 Story number one. We tried to stop the humans, written by original Rich Game. Last visual recording of First Admiral Afferntal. The footage kicked in and the dark room was lit up by flickering artificial light. On the screen was Lars, a red-faced creature that had similarly red protrusions coming out from the edges of her head like spines. Her eyes were completely red, but in a lighter shade, and she looked terrified by the way her spine-like protrusions wobbled and in the way her hairless brow was raised. Her voice was shaken when she spoke. We were once a happy galaxy. We had shared our warlike tendencies in favor of peace and prosperity. Indeed, the Total Disarmament Act had outlawed anything that sole purpose was to damage or kill. We explored the far, far reaches of the galaxy, found other interplanetary communities, and some still venture towards the stars and taught them our pacifist ways. That is why, when we reached System 26-8B, now remanded as Sol System, we were appalled at what we had discovered. Humans, the most self-destructive creatures of all time, we knew that they would be a hard species to convert to pacifism before we even saw them, as we noticed the planet was a death world. We had just just converted a death world to a pacifist place, and we thought that we could do the same here. But then uh, a war broke out. The humans called it the Second World War. We call it the Abomination. We immediately broke off all attempts to contact them. They were far beyond our help, far too suspicious and paranoid. A few decades later, after the war, we ventured back to Earth, even whilst the rest of the galaxy pleaded with us to not let the monsters out. But then we saw that they had evolved into a new barbarism. A proxy war had broken. They spied on each other, friend and foe for intelligence, betrayed and backstabbed each other as they threatened nuclear annihilation. We decided to leave them after we sampled their culture, if you could call it that. A 
and saw their reaction to aliens and saw the reaction was shoot to kill. There were many reactions to this. Even though we had created a paradise of pacifism, some of us were keener to blow them up. Destroy them in the exact way their moving pictures depicted. We reject this. In our outermost asteroid fields, we set up impenetrable force fields. They couldn't leave. No one could get in. We let asteroids leave, and their probes too, so that they didn't suspect anything. Our hope was that they would kill themselves, and that we wouldn't have to worry. Actually, using the force field was the worst-case scenario. But then, they didn't die. About 95 years of the abomination that started to set up a permanent colonies on the fourth planet, and within a century, they were on the moons of the fifth and sixth planets. The first admiral coughed up a bit of orange blood, which trickled out of front. She wiped it off her chin and began talking again. We uh, realized that they had nearly discovered FTL. They had advanced at unbelievable rates, far faster than any others before them. Their brains, it seemed, worked faster than the average sentient. This in turn lowered their life expectancy, and their sleep times were amazingly long as the planet went for an intelligence of a strength evolution. Their first working FTL ship hit our force field and exploded. We all shrank back at this. They had launched a ship to the stars, asking what was out there. And the uh, stars yelled back, No! The humans didn't do much else. They just stopped. Or so it seemed. For the first time in a thousand years, we began military preparation. The entire galaxy. I was amongst those who joined. We hoped to talk them down with overwhelming size. But that wasn't how it happened. We were sat outside the force wheel, waiting. When more probes, more than ever before, were sent out. We let them out. We had no reason to not. And waited even longer. Psychological warfare, they called it. They had a name for war to make your opponent mentally exhausted. Then their fleet came. Impossible numbers and impossible sizes. They had expanded so fast. It was impossible to see how back then. Later, we found that they always knew that we were there. Their probes scanned us. The tank was so backwards that we didn't even see it coming. And they built their ships from what they saw of us. They shot the force field with a body, unlike anything we'd seen before. Then the force field broke, overloaded by firepower. I'm ashamed of what we did next. We started to shoot at them. Were we frightened? Definitely. But the humans didn't fire at us when the force field dropped. She coughed up the orange blood again, and the video started to fail. The seeding spat sparks at the floor and over her body. The war, the horrible war, began afterwards. The humans won the battle we begun, and the pushed. We tried to communicate our surrender. They spoke differently than we did. We could understand their writing, but they couldn't comprehend ours as we talked through releasing gases. They made the air dance for them. So the war 
went on. Battle after battle they won, we lost. We had one thousand years of peace, and they had two thousand years of war. They could fight, we could not. My ship was destroyed after the battle for the whole world. They glassed our planet. All the people there are dead, like so many other worlds. A silent tear streamed down her eye. She was choking now, gasping for air. This bark remorselessly spat down on her as if disgusted had she died. Not long after, the recording itself failed. It was sent out alongside an emergency transmission. On the other side of the galaxy, they watched, horrified. Already, they were removing logos and flags of association, so when the humans came, they would stop and see that they had met the border. But now they knew. The humans wouldn't stop. They couldn't stop them. End of story. Story number two. Humans have trunks, written by Wendy Toast. Humans don't have trunks, but if them don their trunken masks, one should turn and flee, for they use these to breathe their toxic breath, and what follows them is only death. A poem was written by an unnamed elven soldier. The elven fortress stood resolute before the human attackers. Within it stood the last bastion of hope for a dying elven empire. The natural fortress was made of thick woven trees and vines, absorbing or repelling any artillery the humans could throw at it. The casters within were privy to firing bolts of lightning and fire at any planes that attempted to fly overhead, making it an even tougher nut to crack. Running out of options, the humans called upon the 15th Chemical Corps to finally break the siege. Days after the telegram had been sent, the elves watched as trucks full of different humans arrived, wearing different garb than usual. They also were unloading strange cylinders with great care. They simply assumed the humans would try yet another bombardment, followed by a mad dash for any possible breach. The archers manned the walls, ready to rain hail of arrows upon any fool who dared to get within range. On a misty morning... The smell of hay filled the air of the fort. The shifts changed with ease, the humans having left the fort be in peace for a surprising amount of time. A man on the wall looked to see what the mayflies were up to, seeing the oddly dressed men rolling the canisters around, a strange vapor coming from them. He turned to the warrior next to them. Do you wish to dislodge us with pleasant smells? The birds were the first to go. By the end of the day, many of the caster's familiars had perished for unknown reasons, the smell still lingering in the air. By morning, the warriors were coughing up pink phlegm, some collapsing to never stand again. The humans began another bombardment, only this one was different. The shells did not explode against the walls like the last had, Instead, they leaked white smoke that made most who inhaled it writhe in pain. The casters used gusts of wind to try and wood it away. Yet, it lingered. The oddly dressed men advanced in a commotion, some of them wearing odd things on their backs and holding torches. 
The warriors upon the walls tried to fend them off through burning eyes, but could not. Before the remaining troops could be rallied to the walls, great spouts of fire penetrated them. The attackers burned holes through them and scorched anyone unlucky enough to be nearby. The fort fell that day, elves falling to flames, bullets, and burning lungs, many more having been scarred for life due to the exposure to the gas. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1079 Story number one. Cleansing, written by Cheng Lo. You are trespassing upon the solar system of humankind. Please leave or you will be removed. Lord Executioner Haspic stared at the approaching human ship in disbelief. The spacecraft was no larger than a small cruiser. Beauty, compared to the behemoth of the flagship Haspic, had it at his command. It was painted in a hideous concrete grey colour, giving the ship the appearance of a floating utilitarian tower in the blackness of space. In stark contrast to the opulent gold and emerald starships of the cleansing fleet. And the voice that carried the message was not the charismatic melody of the human diplomats the Lord Executioner had grown accustomed to. It was monotonous and plain. A voice without intonation or excitement. It hinted at neither welcoming to the new visitors, nor terror at the scale of the gargantuan cleansing fleet. It was a surreal situation that gave the Lord Executioner the tingling fear that there was something incredibly wrong about this human ship. It was the warning instincts of a large apex predator, petrified by the approach of a sleek but terrifyingly venomous snake. In response to his stunned silence, the human simply repeated its message. You are trespassing upon the solar system of humankind. Please leave or you will be removed. The human uttered a second iteration of words with the same apathy as the first. Its ship continued to approach ever closer towards the cleansing fleet, undaunted by the size and splendor of the invaders. A virus of unease began to spread within Haspic's command staff, one that the Lord Executioner himself was not immune to. They all shared the same look of bafflement as they watched the lone craft drift at its leisurely pace towards the magnificent cleansing fleet. For the third time, the human repeated the message. You are trespassing upon the solar system of humankind. Please leave or you will be removed. The Lord Executioner shook off the clouding feeling that tickled the back of his neck. He would wrestle back control of the encounter and in return it to normalcy. He would strike fear into his foe, spear the human ship from time and space, and cleanse whatever planet lay within the solar system with apocalyptic firepower. Human weakling, I am Hasbeck, the Lord Executioner of the Cleansing Fleet, and it is our destiny to eradicate them. We do not care who you are. The human interrupted. Its voice was raised barely a decibel from before, as it began to breathe its words in at the slightest twinge of amusement. Transpassers that refuse to leave will die. With no further elaboration, the human ship began to accelerate towards the cleansing fleet. In mere seconds, the sleek human craft was rocketing impossible velocity, as though drawn to the cleansing fleet by the power of some dark magic of ancient superstitions. 
The swiftness and aggression of the human vessel caught the veteran Lord Executioner off guard. Never before had any human or any other race in the galactic community acted with such belligerence in response to something as trivial as newcomers waiting to leave the moment they arrived. Before he or his officers could give the order to open fire, the lone human craft had closed much of the distance to the cleansing fleet with the insane acceleration. They began to release a cloud of what seemed at first like metal scrap. It was only when the small spherical shells of metal the ship released began to move that Aspect realized what they were. Drones! he shouted. In the time it took for him to verbalize his thoughts, the swarm of drones had engulfed his fleet, swimming around the pristine flagship like a school of coniferous fish. The virus of unease that had swept through his fleet before evolved into panic, confusion overcoming the ranks. The sluggish battleship of the cleansing fleet tried in futility to veer into safety, while the escorting ships watched helplessly, unable to engage out of fear of friendly fire. The human drones began to release wave after wave of missiles tipped with tactical warheads, overwhelming the shields of his ship through volume alone and slamming against the hull of the proud battleship that had served Haspik so well in the past. The constant volleying of missiles blasted the shining gold plating from his beautiful flagship into radioactive space dust. All the while, the human mothership continued to release an unending sea of spherical drones. Knowing a losing battle when he saw one, Lord Executioner Aspect ordered a tactical retreat. Engage emergency hyperspace jump. We'll come back and smite them down another day. His escorts were quick to respond zipping out of the solar system the moment he gave the word. But not his flagship. Hasbik's flagship seemed to be stuck in the middle of a hostile swarm. The jump drive has been disabled, a technician squeaked. Lord Executioner Hasbik wailed at his misfortune. Or perhaps it was a deliberate targeting by the human drones. With no other choice, he transmitted his surrender to the human vessel. Human! You have bastard me, he said, throwing his pride into the dirt for the sake of survival. I give you the honor of being the first Zeno to accept the surrender of the Lord Executioner. The human gave no response. The drones were now swarming over Hasbik's black ship like insects over a carcass, finding their ways into the bowels of the vessel. The Lord Executioner watched in horror as the security cameras displayed the human drones inside his flagship, methodically clearing room after room. As his own crew made their individual attempts to fight or flee or surrender in vain. A parody, or perhaps a perfected demonstration of the very actions his own soldiers had performed on so many alien planets before. Terror grasped the Lord Executioner as the sickening feeling of impending doom began to bubble at his stomach. I beg you, human. We surrender, Hasper cried. Take us prisoner. That is what you humans do, yes. Take prisoners. Torture us for information. Do with us what you wish, but please spare our lives. As an answer to his pleading, the entrance to the bridge burst open in an inferno of bright yellow flames. The flying metallic drones that emerged from the debris was no longer some small speck on the display. In person, it looked more like a berserk giant of a bull with its camera lenses and weapons focusing upon the mortal lord executioner it now dwarfed. No, please, 
Asback whimpered, with the premonition that these would be his own final words. He had found out too late that these enigmatic humans were far more experienced at his trade than he ever was. Now, the Lord Executioner knew better than anyone what would come next. He was on the receiving end of a cleansing. End of story. Story number two. Void beings written by a glass of whiskey. Garden bladders, rare and sought-after specimens. Only a few species have more than a handful. To discover such a lush living thing is an extraordinary duck. Only the agrarians, a small ancient species that are masters of growing all living things, live exclusively on them. Ash giants, not as rare but almost as important. Mostly the dragons call them home, swimming around in the gaseous interior. From within, they bring forth all fuel the system needs and more. A system doesn't really come alive until the dragons have moved in. Now, garden planets might be rare, but there is a saying amongst one of the species. You make your own luck. Although generally not as good, terraforming planets have long been a staple for intergalactic civilizations. Almost all species found in the galaxy live this way, filling up systems to the brim. It's a slow and arduous process, but necessary for all but one. The cold void of space. Most fear it, and rightfully so. A single mistake, and you not only kill yourself, but most of the people around you. Only one species is insane enough to live in it and call it home. No, marvel of engineering. No magic saves them, only stubbornness. They suffer just as much as anyone else in living in space, losing millions every day. Yet, they persist. They are humans, traders of the galaxy. We choose to do this, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Such stubbornness is what defines them. They construct rings of around worlds to live in and trade with the planet below and beyond. Marrying the system, as the humans call it. Doing this, they bind us all together. It is said that wherever civilization go, humans will follow. To build a helping hand and connect it to those back home. Given rise to the old saying, It doesn't matter how full a system is, there is always room for humans. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.